0: Hi guys, it's Karen. Sometimes I go by my real name, Kristen. Welcome to Rational in Portland, where we say everything you can't say in Portland. I think most people in this country know that Portland, Oregon is one of the epicenters of the homelessness crisis in the United States. One thing that people who do not live in the city of Portland may not know is that homelessness is not confined to downtown. In fact, virtually every corner of this city is experiencing the brunt of the homelessness crisis many neighborhoods more than others. And I say many because the number of neighborhoods, particularly those on the east side of the Willamette river, which splits the city between east and west, many of those on the east side are experiencing the homelessness crisis in particularly acute ways. They are both wealthy neighborhoods and less, much less wealthy neighborhoods. They're both Majority white neighborhoods and majority minority neighborhoods. So the brunt of the homelessness crisis is not confined to particular neighborhoods, and it's certainly not confined to poor neighborhoods. What's really interesting about it is one of the neighborhoods that is acutely experiencing the homelessness crisis is Laurelhurst, which is a neighborhood in Portland that is filled with beautiful old homes. It's considered one of the city's wealthiest areas and it has a large park, aptly named Laurelhurst Park with tens of acres of trees, a duck pond, running trails, tennis courts and a playground. My guest on this episode of Rational in Portland is TJ Browning who lives in Laurelhurst and she chairs the public safety committee for the Laurelhurst Neighborhood Association. It's her job to collect neighborhood complaints. And she is a self-identified progressive. She has spent much of her life engaged in public service and dedicated to the city of Portland. Before I continue with TJ's interview, a few housekeeping matters. One is I'm really excited because this is the first of a number of podcasts that are going to feature people from neighborhoods in Portland that are really experiencing the homelessness crisis and how they're dealing with that, what exactly it is that they're experiencing, what they're observing, ideas that they have for helping alleviate the homelessness crisis, et cetera. So TJ is the first of those guests. I'm really excited about that. Second, less excited about my voice. In June, I got what is known in my neighborhood as the two week cold and it has exceeded its two week goal by incapacitating my voice for weeks on end. Hopefully I sound like Scarlett Johansson, Demi Moore, or I would even take Lindsay Lohan at this point. Third, thank you all for your messages of concern asking if I was okay and if something happened to the podcast and expressing your your disappointment and your upset at the lack of podcast distribution and proliferation? Um, the short answer is as much as I love this podcast, I do have a very demanding paid job as a trial lawyer. And fortunately for those clients, that takes precedence. But I love you all. I love your messages. I do read all your messages on Twitter. If you want to send me a message, you can reach me at rational in PDX on Twitter. And so thank you. I I just, I really appreciate the fact that you're all waiting patiently for the next episode and that you want to hear more. I love that. That's a compliment, a high, high compliment. So the guest is TJ Browning and you will hear TJ say that Laurelhurst Park has always had a few homeless people in it. However, since 2016, when Portland's then mayor, Charlie Hales, started his, quote, unquote, safe sleep policy that allowed for homelessness encampments, a large population of homeless people have chosen the Laurelhurst neighborhood as their residence. In November 2020, the Oregonian reported that there were at least 100 homeless people ensconced in Laurelhurst. As many of you also know, In 2020, in a move led by city councilor Joanne Hardesty, and if this move upsets you, she is up for re-election. If this move upsets you, please vote for her challenger, Renee Gonzalez. Hardesty led the move to defund the police by $15 million here in the city of Portland. And according to KBOI, which is an Idaho-based Station and CBS television affiliate that can be found with news articles on idahonews.com. On October 5th, 2020, they did a story called Neighborhood Response Team Gutted after 15 million budget cut to Portland Police. And according to that article, one of the casualties of defunding the police was a Portland Police Bureau program called the Neighborhood Response Team. That team was designed to reduce crime and fear of crime in neighborhoods and to improve neighborhood livability, empower area residents with methods of crime prevention and reduce crime. And about two dozen officers, a team in each precinct worked full-time on neighborhood issues exclusively. Unfortunately, they eliminated that team. And that were, this article says it was 20 officers. That are no longer assigned to neighborhoods full time. So that was what they had previously. That was eliminated. So it was this confluence of events that led to this overflowing of homelessness in Portland neighborhoods. And of course, decriminalizing drugs did not help the COVID pandemic policy of not moving the homeless from where they're situated or where, where they end up situated did not help. Also in July, 2021, the Portland Tribune reported that in fact, it got so bad, this homelessness crisis, that contractors who were dispatched by the city to engage in trash, sewage, and biohazard control and removal were refusing to go into Laurelhurst due to the increase in gun violence. And you might wonder, well, increasing gun violence, what does that have to do with homelessness? So if you read any of these news reports about the gun violence in homeless camps in Laurelhurst, you will read that there's actually a fair amount of guns in these camps. Um, You may also end up reading, if you just Google Portland, Oregon, gun violence, you may also end up reading that there's a fair amount of homeless on homeless gun violence. And recently I did a ride along with the Portland police bureau during that ride along. I learned that almost every homeless person has a gun. They have a gun because they're breaking into cars. They're trying door handles to, you know, presumably to feed drug habits, to find things that they can sell and they find guns and they, either sell them to other homeless people or they keep them. And so it's assumed by Portland police officers as a safety measure to, to just assume that, that everybody who's homeless has a gun. And, and generally most of them do, which really surprised me. So apparently in this July, 2021 Portland Tribune article, One provider of portable toilets pulled out of Laurelhurst Park because a contracted sanitation worker witnessed homeless people drawing guns during a confrontation. And United Site Services Manager, which is the contractor, the provider of portable toilets, they told City Hall that the company did not want to stop servicing units but could no longer do so safely. They said that users were defecating on the toilets inside of the units and not in the tank. Cars were blocking them constantly, not people who were living in Laurelhurst, but cars allegedly owned or at least driven by homeless people. This July 2021 Portland Tribune article also says that a different contractor was providing five toilets on site at a cost of $650 per week via the CARES Act dollars, according to Portland's Homelessness and Urban Camping Impact Reduction Program, which is a city program. It says a police log seen by the Tribune says the worker was in close proximity as one homeless person pointed a gun at another person in the camp. The showdown escalated after a third person emerged from an RV while holding an assault rifle. The July 2021 Tribune article explained that some of the gun violence included a shot fired from inside of a tent, a homeless person who was pistol whipped by another homeless person, and several men wandering around loading and holding guns. Another thing I learned on this ride along as an aside, which is, I mean, shouldn't be an aside. It's, it should really be at the front and center of your minds because I found it so interesting is that according to law enforcement, most of the crime that they deal with is caused by involves homelessness, homeless people Um, particularly people who are abusing drugs, have severe mental illness problems, and are homeless. Most of it is generated by these people. And the overwhelming majority of crime that law enforcement sees is related to uh, drug abuse, drug use, drug abuse, and the fallout from that so it's, it's crime to support a drug habit. It it's, it's people on drugs who are committing crimes. And, and then of course, um, some of the shoot, a fair amount of the shootings are not just homeless people. They're done by, or within the realm of, of gang, gangs, gang violence, really. Um, which is unfortunate because, you know, we disbanded the the gun violence reduction team at the behest again of counselor Joanne Hardesty because um, she said it was it was racist and it was unfairly targeting black people the unfortunate thing is that those officers according to law enforcement really knew who had guns and who didn't and they they were able to Especially the beat cops. They were able to figure out who people were that could be trusted that could could communicate with the police about gun violence. And now we just apparently we don't have that. So when I went on a ride along, there was a shooting and I was told by law enforcement that that what was gonna happen is that one of the hospitals would call and say that somebody came in with a gunshot because generally a lot of these people, if they're not completely incapacitated, they will run off. The, the, I'm talking about the victims here, the victims of gun violence. They will run off, they will be picked up by somebody else. They will be taken to an area hospital because they're gravely injured. Um, if they're not gravely injured, likely the police will never hear from them again and they will never hear anything about that incident again. But if they're gravely injured, they'll be taken to a hospital. And once at the hospital, the police will receive a report because the police will call into all the area hospitals and say, please let us know if somebody comes in with a gunshot wound, They, the hospital will notify law enforcement that the a person injured by a gunshot wound came in and they are not interested in talking about who did it. They, they didn't see anything. They don't know anything, et cetera. So that did happen. That same night that the the there was a shooting, so it was really interesting because I was told that that was going to happen, and sure enough, that's what happened it's It's very disheartening and and upsetting, but that that that's just what's going on so at one point in lawhurst, there was not only gun violence there were there was obstruction of roads, there were handmade signs of Plywood placed in the middle of the road in the neighborhood to obstruct traffic that said things like toll, $2. And the July 2021 Portland Tribune article said that a spokeswoman for the city's homelessness and urban camping impact reduction program said it paid rapid response BioClean nearly $150,000 to remove trash from Laurelhurst between May 2020. In July 2021. So that's those are tax dollars. Those costs, according to this spokesperson, did not include weekly or bi-weekly cleaning performed by Clean Start PDX who don't itemize by location, the spokeswoman added. Any expenses incurred by Portland Parks and Rec, Portland Fire Rescue, Portland Police Bureau, and the Portland Bureau of Transportation are also not included in this figure. So the figure that we're paying to deal with the homelessness crisis in general, but also in these neighborhoods, is sky high. We've talked about this on the podcast before, but I think it's worth noting again, this is not about money. Voters in the broader region of Multnomah, Washington, and Clackamas counties in 2020 approved a tax measure to bolster funding for homelessness, and that measure increases taxes for higher-income businesses and households, or both simultaneously, if you're like me and you own a business and you live within the city of Portland, it's expected to raise 2.5 billion with a B by 2030. And that was in addition to the millions and millions of dollars we were already spending on homelessness. In fact, according to the LA times, this is a great article. You all should take a look at it because it features quotes from TJ, my guest on this episode. It's by Angela Hart, LA Times, June 21, 2022. Not safe anymore. Portland confronts the limits of its support for homeless services. So in fact, what this article details is that in 2017, I'm quoting from the article, the year Mayor Ted Wheeler, a Democrat, took office, Portland spent roughly $27 million on homeless services under Wheeler's leadership funding has skyrocketed with Wheeler that this year, 2022, pushing through a record 85 million for homeless housing and services in the 2022, 23 fiscal year. So this is not about money. This is about broader policy. And we'll talk more with TJ about what she thinks might help in terms of policy in regard to homelessness. TJ, of course, my guest on this episode was quoted in the also in the July 2021 Portland Tribune article and said that Laurelhurst residents have seen everything from drug use to sex acts performed out in the open, and that even little kids in the neighborhood were being threatened by homeless people. She said that in 2021, the city quietly stopped scheduling summer children's programming in Laurelhurst Park. Things got so bad. TJ told the Portland Tribune that she wants sanctioned camps and sanctioned parking, and she's been begging the city for that. She knows that the homeless needs somewhere safe and secure to be, and that what's going on in Laurelhurst isn't safe for anyone, certainly not the homeless people. Activists, like a group called Stop the Sweeps PDX, have swooped in to prevent the city from clearing, or sweeping, or even in general servicing the encampments. According to an Oregonian article in July, 2021, the head of Stop the Sweeps is named Benjamin Domlin. I did some research and it appears that Benjamin identifies himself as an activist who has experienced homelessness. He seems to not have much of a social media presence personally at all. He has virtually... No real digital footprint outside of his role as somebody who seems to fight the city and neighborhood residents at every turn in regard to homelessness issues. But Stop the Sweeps PDX certainly has a huge loud presence on Twitter. It appears that he may have been part of a group called Denver Homeless Out Loud and that he may be part of a group or at least affiliated with a group called RAP, W R A P or the Western Regional Advocacy Project, which describes itself on this website as a group that mobilizes, infiltrates, and disrupts actions taken to remove homeless encampments. RAP refers to people that work with it as comrades, which is sort of a dog whistle for left-wing extremists, kind of like its counterpart, quote-unquote, patriot, which on social media generally means a more right-wing, certainly much more. A few clicks, just a few clicks, certainly more right wing. Yeah. Extremist. You'll hear TJ say that she thinks Benjamin lives in Beaverton. And that's not something I could confirm from my research. Like I said, um, so I don't know, like I said, Benjamin, the individual doesn't really, or, or the, or the alias or, or, you know, potentially that is Benjamin's real name, but Benjamin, does not have a real personal online presence outside of what appears to be his firm belief that no one should ever move a homeless person and that homeless people have the right to set up shop wherever they want and demand and receive an endless list of services. According to an Oregonian article entitled Portland Officials Plan to Sweep Homeless Encampment at Laurelhurst Park After Months Long Standoff from July 30th, 2021, In March, it says in March 2021, the city tried to remove the homeless encampments in Laurelhurst, but the activists like Stop the Sweeps blocked the road and the city was so worried about a violent confrontation that it didn't proceed. TJ has done even more press interviews than Benjamin, which is impressive. If you Google her name, TJ Browning, a ton of articles come up. She's been featured prominently, as I said, in the LA Times. In that article of, it's very recent. It was just in June of this year. So June 21, 2022. She has also been featured frequently in Portland media. In 2017, TJ was elected to the Laurelhurst Neighborhood Board. She had previously served on police oversight panels and review boards and had engaged in public service in Portland for years. You will also find that TJ is relentlessly vilified by name in local Portland media like The Mercury which is a far left weekly paper in Portland and by Willamette Week which is another Portland weekly that aside from its Nigel Jacquois articles a he's a journalist who I really like and admire and appreciate aside from his articles Willamette Week is really only a few clicks to the center of The Mercury You'll also see TJ vilified by Stop the Sweep's prolific Twitter account, of course, and by various people who identify as Antifa activists on Twitter. The Twitter accounts take photos and videos of TJ, and they will post them. They will post her face. They post her name. I just did a very basic Google search, and it's scary how many of those pop up. It's terrifying, frankly. What I think a lot of these left-wing extremists don't understand is that TJ identifies herself as a progressive. In 2010, she was the chair of the Portland Police Bureau Advisory Committee. She also led the mayor's work group that studied police accountability and produced a 2000 report. She is a founder of the Nathan McMurray Thomas Fund, Inc. She's a past member of what is known as the First Citizen Review Committee. According to NathanThomasFund.org, I didn't know this story, and I can't believe it that I hadn't heard this story. But um, you know, this this happened in the early 90s. And by then my family had moved to Kent, Washington, which is a it's really one of the major armpits of Seattle. Um so still in the Pacific Northwest, but out of Portland, which makes sense why I hadn't heard about this. Nathan Thomas was, so according to this website, NathanThomasFund.org. Nathan Thomas was a 12-year-old boy who tragically died in January 92. He was in his home when an intruder took him hostage. Police officers tried to rescue him, but there was gunfire and Nathan was accidentally shot by officers. He died a few hours later. Nathan's family, the Portland Police Bureau, and the Portland community were all traumatized by that tragedy. The Nathan Thomas Memorial Award was presented by the Chiefs Forum, which is a policy advisory group to the Portland Police Bureau's Chief of Police. This is the forum's highest award and is given annually for an act of outstanding performance by which the nominee demonstrated in great degree exceptional communicative accomplishments which further the goal of community policing and/or show acts of selflessness, personal courage, and devotion to community. In 2009, the Nathan Thomas Memorial Award became one of the awards given at the biannual Portland Police Bureau Awards Ceremony, and that honor is awarded to any individual for demonstrating exceptional communicative accomplishments that further the goals of community policing. And that's so. Tj was incredibly involved in all that, also. TJ has been incredibly involved in regard to local politics in Portland, Oregon. She, in fact, supported Charlie Hales, the progressive mayor who started the port, who really rolled out the red carpet for Portland campers. In September of 2010, The Columbian, a local Vancouver, Washington paper, did a story during Portland Mayor Sam Adams' tenure. So, this was post Hales. Sam Adams dismissed members of the police bureau's budget advisory committee and planned to appoint new members with new chief of police Mike Reese at that time. So, that is how TJ ended up off the police bureau advisory committee. She was one of the members of the committee that received a letter summarily dismissing all of them. And according to the Columbian on September 9th, 2010, they suspected their dismissal was in retaliation for past criticism of Sam Adams. It says committee co-chair TJ Browning said the mayor and police chief like citizen input they can control. The committee analyzes police spending decisions and makes recommendations to city commissioners. The Oregonian, May 13th, 2010 did an article called Portland Mayor Sam Adams names new police chief, comma, boots, Rosie Sizer. The article says TJ Browning, who heads the Portland Bureau's Budget Advisory Committee, said she couldn't understand how the mayor didn't know his proposed budget cuts would force the bureau to lay off officers. I'm so sick and tired of City Hall and our elected officials not doing their job. And because they don't do their jobs and they get caught not doing their job, they look around and go after the best chief of police we've had, Browning said. To fire Rosie because Sam Adams is embarrassed because he got caught not doing his job as unconscionable. It was all over the place that we were going to lose positions, but yet he fires her for what? Cover up for his lack of oversight. I'm tired of our elected officials using public safety as a means for their personal grudges. Also, thecrimereport.org, which is a website affiliated with the Center on Media Crime and Justice at John Jay College of Criminal Justice. This is a website that's been cited by the ACLU. So this is not a quote unquote right-wing publication. Certainly they did a story September 9th, 2010 called Portland mayor fires panel that criticized him over police budget. It says that Sam Adams was criticized by a police department citizen budget advisory panel during a budget scuffle with former chief Rosie Sizer and informed the group's members that their services are no longer required. There was a brief August 23rd letter to the panel's eight members. Adams said that he and the new chief Mike Reese plan to appoint new members Adams wants additional representation on this committee that includes individuals with significant accounting, budgeting, or relevant business experience in public or private sectors. Members of the panel included bankers, business executives, and labor specialists and said that they were insulted by the letter. They questioned the mayor's motives. It says TJ Browning, chairwoman and member of the advisory group for eight years, says, I think they like citizen input that they can control. We've worked incredibly hard. We do a lot of research. We don't just shoot from the hip. When they come down opposite from what we they want us to, I don't think that they like it. On May 12th, the article says Adam Adams fired Chief Sizer two days after a news conference at which she said the mayor's proposed budget would cause layoff of 25 officers. Adams said he thought there were vacancies in the force and blamed the Bureau for giving him bad numbers. So, not only is TJ incredibly familiar with Oregon government, she's a longtime public service. She has worked tirelessly for police accountability and for improving communication between police and their citizens. She was also quoted in an Oregonian article from April 6, 2021, called Longtime Portland Park Ranger. We are not the police of the parks, period, and we're not going to be, period this is one of my very favorite oregonian articles we've talked about it before on the podcast but for those of you who who forget or who haven't heard those episodes and are unfamiliar with the article just for just for background and just to kind of illustrate the dysfunction that has gone on with police in the city of portland the article details that there was a proposal from city council to hire more park rangers to help stem the dramatic rise of shootings and gun deaths. And it absolutely stunned this, the, the Oregonian lays it out. It stunned Portland's park rangers. And this is probably one, certainly one of the very few black marks of Mingus maps, who is for sure the most moderate, the most rational, the most together probably of our city councilors. This was a, unfortunately for him, this was a brainchild of him, Carmen Rubio and Dan Ryan. And they called for spending $1.4 million in park levy money to hire seasonal rangers to deal with gun violence. Now I will say, I have heard from a Portland police officer that he was injured while working and Mingus Mapp sent him a super sweet get well card. Like, Hey, I'm so sorry this happened. So I I think in general Mingus is the best we've got. and, And I would hate to see him go, but unfortunately this was one of the very few, um, not so rational things that, that he was behind. But anyway, in that article, TJ, who of course has worked for three decades on police accountability measures, she said that the idea that park rangers would be dealing with gun violence was silly. And this is in that Oregonian article, April 6, 2021. She says, we were told repeatedly it was too dangerous for park rangers and that it was a police matter. She's referring to the, the issues with homeless, homelessness and crime going on in the encampments and gun the gun violence that was going on in the encampments in Laurelhurst. And it says that she also volunteers, TJ volunteers as an advocate for people who appeal Portland Police Bureau findings on their complaints against officers. So she assists people who have complaints against police officers. That's, she's a progressive person. She's, this is not a mega quote unquote Patriot. That's not who TJ is. And the attempts by people affiliated with Antifa and Stop the Sweeps PDX to paint her as some kind of right-wing nut job are flat out wrong and insane. That is you'll hear from you'll you'll hear her. I mean that is not who she is. I mean, if if you leave this interview thinking that she is all, at all any clicks to the right, I'll be shocked. So she says in this Oregonian article, she's quoted in April 6th, 2021 as saying, the park rangers know better than you what they're capable of doing. She actually wrote to the city commissioners and the mayor about this. And she said, well, the park rangers have an important role to play in our city. They're no substitute for a professional trained police force. Thank you so much for listening to that introduction before hearing from TJ, which I know you're all dying to do, but I think it's important to sort of set the stage for her interview and why her interview is so important. So here's my interview with T.J. Browning from the Laurel Hearst Neighborhood Association. T.J., welcome. I'm so glad that you're here. Tell me, who, who is this Stop the Sweeps PDX on Twitter?
1: Um, the contact person I had was uh, a man named Benjamin. We called him Beaverton Benjamin because he didn't even live in Portland. and. Um, I don't maybe have a last name for him. I'm not sure, but uh, who would have a last name for it is Commissioner Ryan, because when he got his safe rest villages, everything passed. He, the only person he publicly thanked was Benjamin from Stop the Sweeps.
0: That says it all.
1: I thought it did at the time. I mean, we had been trying to have as much input as possible, but we're just citizens. so you know, not as important.
0: Well, that's completely consistent with Portland and Multnomah County politics and officials' priorities, which tend to elevate the voices of homeless people and the quote-unquote houseless advocates over tax-paying citizens and frankly over people, working people. So how do you stay unafraid? How do you keep going? Well, the
1: unafraid part of it is not as accurate of late as it
2: used to be. Um, the going, keep going. Man, I got to blame that on my parents. You know, my
1: my. My father was heavily involved in local politics, not like running for office, but he was down before city council testifying all the time, you know, President of the neighborhood association, coached the boys' basketball team, although he didn't have a son you know he he mother was the you know brownie troop leader, and my parents were heavily involved in local community wherever they lived and I think that I just grew up, it was never said to me, but I just grew up thinking that when you became a grown up, you got a job, kept a home, raised a family, and got involved in your community. So I think somewhere in me, my definition of an adult is somebody who participates in their city, their community, or something. And I have been an activist on one level or another for 40 years now. Oh, my God, am I old? And um, it didn't matter what I was working on, uh, police accountability, homelessness. I actually did a lot of fundraising for a homeless program and worked a lot on a, and I was an early big time supporter of Street Roots. And when was this? Um Street Roots, I got involved when I met Brian Pollard, who was the founding editor of Street Roots. I was chairing a committee for Mayor Katz, uh, a stakeholders committee that was supposed to design a citizens review committee for uh, the city. I literally had the left and right. I, the ACLU attorney was sitting across from the police union attorney, but Brian Pollard was there and he was representing the homeless community. He was so quiet and I was trying to hear everybody's voice that I kept bugging him. Okay, do you have anything to say? And you know, while you do a podcast, in order to get people to actually speak, they have to feel comfortable. And that is a lot of times based on trust or a relationship. But I needed to um, get Brian's input and I needed to get to know him better and make him feel comfortable. He's very, he's a very intro. He's very much an introvert. He's one of my best friends to this
0: day. So is he still with Street Roots?
1: Oh my gosh. No, you could do a whole podcast. He left Street Roots. He went to be the editor of the Cherokee Nation newspaper in Tulleclaue, Oklahoma. He's part Cherokee. He then went on to be the executive director of the Native American National Journalism Association. I probably have that right. It's NAJA. Then he went to Stanford on a night oh, wow. um, fellowship, and then the pandemic hit. He was, he was uh, fighting for freedom of the press for Native American indigenous people in order to have a treaty with the United States government back in the day. Uh, Native Americans had to have a constitution. So all these tribes and nations have constitutions, although many don't even know what they say. And he was going through the historical records and going through all the treaties and discovered the vast majority of them have freedom of the press. And yet the vast majority of Indian tribes and nations, the press is controlled by the leadership. So, if an editor writes a criticism of the tribe leadership, they lose their job. That's called Freedom of the Press. So that's been his campaign, and that's what he got the fellowship at Stanford for. Now he works for the AP. He still has the he's still on the board for the Native American National Journalism Association. And I think he's still on now he just recently rejoined the board for Street Roots.
0: Oh, we did. Okay, so he's back Aren't you glad you asked me that simple question? For sure. I mean, one of the reasons I started this podcast was because I'm trying to dig deep and figure out what is going on in this city because the media doesn't report on it.
1: No. Well, and Brian, I had such an admiration for Street Roots and what he was doing. Um, Giving people who didn't have a voice a voice giving them job skills, earning money, legitimate money. I mean, they wrote it and the um, professional journalism people in Portland edited and supported it tremendously. So if I would do, a like I used to, uh, well, I still do. I'd have a Christmas open house and I would call it a Christmas socking party. And people weren't obliged, but I asked them to bring socks. I mean, they're always on sale. They're easy to carry. And I would just get hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of pairs of socks. And after the party, I'd take it to Street Roots so that they could distribute. It's really easy. People didn't have to if they didn't want to. But, you know, my, oh, back to your original question, too, why I do what I do. I find that the vast majority of the people care a lot and really want to help and don't know how
0: that's exactly right.
1: A lot of people like, I don't want to ask for money. I don't want to ask them to get involved. You know, so many people are afraid to do that. Ask. My father always told me so many people want to, and don't know how. And so you have to keep asking. And through the years, I've discovered how many times people have said, oh, thank you so much. I didn't know how to get involved or thank you so much. This is such an easy way to help out. We, the vast majority of the people in this world are good people. But the, as you yourself admit, the problem is so overwhelming, they have no clue how to help or how to improve it. So if you can give them easy access to doing anything, you'd be surprised how many people step up to the plate. So whenever I do any fundraising of any kind for any organization or cause or political or whatever, my ending pitch is always thank you very much for supporting this effort. But the world's really messed up. And we all need to do something. I don't care if you join your church, you want to be a Girl Scout leader, you care about the environment, you our roads need fixing. I don't care what it is. Everybody needs to choose something and do something. Because that's the only way the world's going to get better. And now as I've gotten older than dirt. Now I look at my son and his generation and what we're leaving behind and all that does has amplified my motivation. I can't leave this world a mess
2: for that, but my son.
0: When you say the way in which you were unafraid has changed a little, when when did it change? What precipitated that?
2: You can't let fear be your motivation for your daily actions. I don't care who you are or where you are. You can't, unless you're in some sort of
1: survival mode. If you're in the Ukraine or something, you, if you let fear dictate everything, you don't really have much of a life. Um, when I call it the summer of the occupation, when the stop the sweeps, anarchists, Antifa,
2: whoever the hell they were, occupied the park, Laurelhurst Park.
1: They were marching through the park, carrying AK-14s. I'm not into, I, I could be wrong, but you know, the high powered rifles, like just blatantly carrying them.
0: Yeah, like they're Israeli soldiers or something.
1: Yeah, they had knives. They had guns. Uh, We had a guy walking through the park with a bullwhip, snapping a bullwhip. I was walking with my husband to go get a Sunday morning paper like we always did. I had a 13-year-old dog who's not terribly mobile. He had the puppy. We're just walking across the street from Laurelhurst Park on Stark Avenue, heading up to the mini market there on the corner and this woman comes running out of a tent
2: screaming at us i had absolutely zero interaction with her and came up threw her arms around me i couldn't run because
1: i had a 13 year old dog who was (laughs) couldn't run i was trapped And so as she's running across the street at me, screaming, or at us screaming, I've got my phone up, I'm recording it, and because I don't know what she's going to do. She throws her arms around me in a bear hug, trying to grab my phone, screaming at me. I can't even tell you what she was screaming at me, because it was not intelligible to me. Here's my husband with the other dog that's a puppy and skittish and she's running around and I'm trying to get keep my phone away from her and get it to him and she's got me I've got no mask on because I was just outside with my husband walking. He had a po- and I had one in my pocket. He had one in his pocket for going into the store, but we didn't. Either of us have one on. Her face is right in front of my face while she's screaming at me, and then she stops and coughs in my face deliberately and says, "Ha
2: ha ha! Now you're going to get sick." It was completely unprovoked. That's
0: really scary. You must have been terrified. Was this summer of 2020?
1: Yes. The summer of the occupation. Well, it was COVID. So,
2: yeah. Then we had a
1: a Laurelhurst board meeting not long after this. And... We're sitting in an open. They're open meetings by law, and in marches. I'm saying Antifa because some of them had the Antifa emblems on their clothes. But Benjamin from Stop the Sweeps was there too, so I don't know what the interaction is between these groups. So here are ten or twelve people sitting, aging age from. 35 to 84, and we are outnumbered. And one of them has a big chain he's swinging around and slamming on the table behind us. And they're yelling at us. And I'm texting neighbors like crazy. We're here by our, we need more people. To come. I mean, the neighbors just start coming in. Half of them are senior citizens, but I mean, that's that's what a community does. They just came in and took chairs and sat. But they were screaming at us that we were white, racist, privileged, blah, blah, blah. And that, you know.
0: Most of them were white themselves, right?
1: I believe so. But they're screaming at our president, whose parents, both parents, were Mexican immigrants. And when he says to them, and he's confused. And when he says to him to them, "What are you talking about? I'm a Latinx. Here's the response. Well, you're not full. Like there's a percentage that counts or something. And looking at our board at that time, we had two Native American Indians. We had one Latinx. I mean what we we had ten people that night. I mean, we have a, a gay married man, we have a lesbian married woman. I mean, we.
0: <laughs> so, I mean, especially in Portland, which is not a huge city, that would seem to be an overrepresentation of historically oppressed groups. That's
1: my thought. But it was the first time in my life that I
2: felt hate. For the color of my skin and my perceived economic situation.
1: They didn't know anything about me. They didn't know anything about the people they were screaming at. Our uh, affiliated tribal Native American worked so hard on Native American issues, and they're screaming at him. I mean, So I don't want to say, oh, and then all board members got doxxed. They had information out there, their
2: wives' cell phones, their children's names, where they worked. Then homes got graffitied. And um, I used to walk through
1: the park all the time. I don't ever leave the park where I'm not paying attention to anybody might be following me. I never, I don't know that that's fear necessarily, but I don't know what else it would be. I guess, lack of stupidity or something. I mean, I am careful when I walk by the homeless tents. I'm careful. You know, I get um, park benches. I call them my memorials, but anyway. They tag park benches in the park. TJ, you're, you know, privileged, white privileged, racist, you're...
0: So they write your name in graffiti with epithets. Yeah. I mean, what was that like the first time you saw your name on graffiti throughout your neighborhood? In your neighborhood. At the time,
1: I laughed at it. And I thought, well, I actually told the park worker who showed it to me and was going to cover it up. I said, well, that's probably the only time I'm going to get a park bench memorialized to me. And I, I laughed it off. And the funny thing with Benjamin, I had he they wanted to have a meeting with me. They kept trying. They, and so they took in spray paint on down 37th Avenue, big letters, or maybe it was chalk. TJ, call, and there was a telephone number. And these were probably two foot wide. So somebody on the second floor of their home looked down, took a picture of it, sent it to me, said, hey, TJ, somebody wants you to call them.
0: But why you? Like, why were they singling you out in particular? Why name you?
2: I... I used to be the national spokesperson
1: for a child safety course. And so it was sponsored by a corporation. It was their community outreach. And so I had a media contact, a consultant, like who told me how to dress, what to wear, how to do sound bites. I had done a lot of political uh, campaigning and involvement in my younger days. So I had gone to campaign school and learned how to do interviews and do sound bites. So I had, I believe it's because I had a lot of contact with media in the area. Like they knew who I was, the media did. And so when something would go down with the homeless camp or in the neighborhood or close by, Somebody from one of our local stations would call because they knew I lived. Well, you you do it. You know, you're looking for somebody to comment. And I was doing a lot of interviews. And I was always assuming that's what it was. And the funny thing at the time, if you go back and look at all those interviews I did, I always said, this isn't right. This isn't fair to the unhoused. It isn't fair to the housed. Nobody's safe the way things are. I always said, I don't want this move from our neighborhood into somebody else's neighborhood. I want City Hall to do their job. Always. And so... Benjamin reached out, and I went to this meeting with. I went over to 37th where he had his headquarters, and had this meeting with Benjamin. Was
0: this a building, or was it just out in the open?
1: It was a corner of 37th and Oak, and they had a um, tables and awnings and bookshelves and trucks in the park. So much damage to the park; it was just heartbreaking. And um, the first thing he said to me, which was. Uh, Surprising to me, you know, I'm kind of surprised. I looked uh, a lot of people tell me about all this great work you did with police accountability. And like he was surprised that I did something he agreed with. I'm not quite sure, but he felt like we had some sort of connection and could talk. And he said, um, that they what what they were demanding. They wanted a piece of land somewhere that the city gave them that they could all just live there and unsanctioned. And I said, well, we're not far off base because my safety, I'm the chair for the Neighborhood Safety Committee. And we had been having regular meetings with the mayor's office at that time, promoting sanctioned camps. We need more sanctioned camps. We need car. We need vehicle safe camps. We need, and so we had been working on these um, plans. I mean, I had done a lot of research. I had um, Brian Pollard, my friend, was one of the people who got Dignity Village going. So and that's is
0: that Brian from Street Roots?
1: Yes, and so I had. Looked at Dignity Village and how it was functioning. I got a hold of the aide in the mayor's office who helped get Dignity Village approved and talked to him. Like, what's it cost? Blah blah blah. What were the barriers? We had priced out our model of a sanctioned camp. We had the food. The we, we so we were working on this continually with city hall. This. Dialing down what a sanctioned camp would look like. And so I said to Benjamin, Well, this is what we've been working, you know, us the bad guys, quote unquote. This is what we've been working on for almost a year. And we've been doing the legwork, we've been costing it out. We've been, and he said, No, he not a sanctioned camp. That wasn't right. He didn't agree with that. So I looked down the street and I pointed to the street where. There were fires, people were being attacked. I'm talking campers. I'm not, ta- I'm, I mean, I can go into what the neighborhood and park users were going through. But trust me, what was going on in that camp was not safe for those campers.
0: Yeah, no, I believe it. Nothing that's going on in these camps are safe for the campers. What What exactly did you witness?
1: I would get calls regularly from people uh, women at night screaming rape, I mean just screaming and people once again remember this, good people wanting to help but couldn't tell where that was coming from and weren't safe to go find out. People sobbing on the phone, this woman's being raped and I I, I, mean, I could hear and and
2: they can't, they, I mean, this was an armed encampment. Bullwhips, poles, bats,
1: guns showed up, but we always thought there were knives. I mean, there was, this was, this was a dangerous place. And so I said, you, this, this is what you want? And at that time, here comes the woman who, uh, had run across the street and assaulted me. She comes walking up out of the camp, up to Benjamin asking for a cigarette. Do you have any cigarettes? I stepped away. I didn't know why she attacked me in the first place. I didn't know if she was gonna recognize me and come at me again. You know, I stepped way away. And she was trying to, oh, what a cute dog. She was trying to talk to me about. And I was just like kept backing up and keeping my space. She walks away and I say to Benjamin, that's one of the reasons you can't have an unsanctioned camp. And he had given her a couple of cigarettes. He said, what? The c- what? I told him what had happened to me and that that woman had done it. And I said, she's living in your camp.
2: Here's what he said. Oh, yeah, she's very volatile. I, I could see that happening.
1: That's when I decided I wasn't going to meet with Benjamin anymore.
2: This guy, with a clear sense of ethics and
1: values and fairness, thought that that was a safe environment for people to live in. We were not ever going to connect, ever.
0: Did I you describe him, to him the the cries of rape and things, or did you just not get to that point because it, he had already? I
1: can't actually remember. At the same thing that it, I don't actually remember. I remember telling him,
2: which I'll tell you, Hurst uh, Park has always had homeless. I always, but. We knew the homeless.
1: Um, there, I used to walk the park every day with a neighbor and she knew one in particular. And every time she'd see him, hey, how are you doing? Hey, I got some turkey. You want a turkey sandwich and bring him turkey sandwich. She knew him. She knew his story. And I didn't know that particular individual. The individual I knew um, had lived in our park for two or three years. Um, had a key to my house. He house sat when we left on vacation. When he got a job, it's very difficult to be homeless and and maintain a job because you don't you can't shower and things. So he got to shower. He'd come in and shower. We had a schedule, so he wasn't. You know, we had to get take showers in the morning too. So we had a regular shower. did laundry here once a week. Um, My husband got him a job. I I found him housing eventually. And, you know, we knew him. We knew his story. He didn't do drugs. He didn't um, litter. He didn't um, scream at people. In fact, every Monday morning in the summer, he would go up and down the surrounding park area and pick up all the litter from all the housed people who used the park heavily during the weekend and then would litter along the street. He would go pick it all up. My neighbor down the street had a woman living across the street from him, Sherry, and he kept an eye on her. I mean, we knew these people and we knew their stories. And quite frankly, they were polite guests. And Sherry had a part time job through Catholic Charities and she was on a wait list for housing. And she came up and knocked at my neighbor's door and said to tell him goodbye and thank him for all the help. And he says, Oh my gosh, you got housing. That's so great. No, it's not safe here anymore. I've been assaulted twice. These new campers have made it too dangerous for me. And that's what we all witnessed.
0: So was that also in 2020? Oh no, that
1: was about 2019. So like right when the camping around the city started growing. 2016
0: was when then Mayor Charlie Hale started the safe sleep. So maybe 2017. I wouldn't be
1: surprised. Yes, I don't know. I don't remember. Then that's when homes started getting broken into. People started getting, well, these neighbors,
2: quote unquote, who were homeless, left. It wasn't safe for them.
1: We had a child walk out of her front door and have a woman coming screaming out of her tent obviously in a mental health crisis, screaming at her, I'm going to murder you.
2: How old was this child?
1: Nine, maybe. Oh, my gosh. Just screaming, charging at her. We had a a little boy who has asthmatic, who both of these lived across the street from the camp. And he couldn't, all of a sudden, he couldn't, the doctor and the parents couldn't control his asthma attacks. They were just, and so the dad put a uh, air monitor on his front porch. The air monitor outside his home was worse than the air quality when we had all the wildfires and people were told to stay indoors.
0: Yeah, most people familiar with the city of Portland know there are fires coming from these encampments 24-7.
1: They were burning plastic. They were burning garbage. They were burning painted boards. They were burning anything they could get their hands on.
2: I mean, his pediatrician even wrote a letter to the city Because of the air quality. Did the city ever respond? I mean, I take it no.
1: I'm not that I am aware of.
2: Yeah. We had a propane tank explode right across the street from houses. Now, don't misunderstand me on this point. There are people
1: living in their tents who are going through the same thing. couldn't you could call the fire bureau on the all the fires they would come they did come when the tent exploded and off the record i mean i'm telling you this but off the record i finally found out why i had a conversation with a, a retired police lieutenant
0: So, should we edit this out?
1: Oh, no, no, no. I'm just saying I got this information off the record. This is not from the fire bureau. I could sweep the jeopardy category on this issue. So, I was telling, I was complaining to him about the fire issue. I mean, we went to DE, I tried everything. We went to DEQ. I mean, I went to the state fire marshal. I found out our fire marshal's The only fire marshal who has jurisdiction is the state fire marshal. Your cities have to apply to be allowed to have a fire marshal, and they must enforce the state rules. If they are out of compliance, you don't get to have a fire
0: marshal. Wait, do we have a fire marshal in the city of Portland? We have
1: one, but they don't, they wouldn't do anything. So I finally found the answer. I believe the fire bureau has extensive training to keep their people safe. So when there's a structural fire, they are trained to know where the dangers are. They're trained to know, you know, how to keep themselves safe in that environment. A homeless camp has no structure, no organization. They have no idea where propane tanks are. They have no idea if they're the little ones that will explode for any heat or the big ones that will kill everybody. They don't like going into homeless camps. They
2: cannot keep their people safe. That makes sense to me. All these little rules that the city has let go
1: have an accumulative effect that threatens all of us. And we all are experiencing the side effects of just letting all these rules
2: go.
0: So you have noticed a change in the tenor of the homeless population in Laurelhurst and in Portland itself. What do you attribute that to? Is that because of this P2P meth that Sam Quiniones and... Michael Schellenberger, Michael Schellenberger ran for governor of California to talk about the phenol to propanone meth, the combinations of chemicals that are legal, cheap, and toxic, cyanide, lime, mercury, sulfuric acid, hydrochloric acid, et cetera, as opposed to ephedrine from like the Sudafed pills that became almost impossible to get.
1: Did you read the Atlantic Monthly article? I think quite a few things changed. Um, Some of it was very slow. When the federal government quit funding housing, when we with our um, um, conscience bothering us destroyed all the projects. You know, there was a big, big social movement that we shouldn't have these big um, um, projects where poverty and crime is all like in one spot, uh, compacted area that if we put affordable housing everywhere in the city, then you don't have, you don't create a ghetto, an uninhabitable, unhealthy area. So we tore down all the projects. Meanwhile, we defunded public housing from the federal government. They put it on the state who would then put it on the cities and we did not have enough affordable housing. And now we've hit this point, then we have the pandemic. I think that's a big part of it. Affordable housing is a piece. The lack of affordable housing is definitely a piece. The new math, I quote the article from the Atlantic November's uh, Atlantic Monthly article. And in fact, I reached out to that report Reporter who wrote that article in that book, and I sent him a uh, email immediately. Do you know any place in this country, a city, a neighborhood, a community, a county, a state, anywhere, who's figured out how to deal with this drug issue? I I I could be wrong here, so
0: yeah. Sam Kinionis in the Atlantic, October eighteenth, twenty twenty one. He wrote the book Dreamland, which I love. Yes. It's just an absolutely fantastic history of the American opioid epidemic. And he also includes a, some documentation about cities that have really turned things around and how to fix things, ideas for cities like Portland, frankly. And then his more recent book, which is just as good, is called The Least of Us. And it's about fentanyl and meth.
1: So I reached out to him because he said, and, and, and I, like I said, I have so much stuff in my head. I, quoting statistics is difficult, but um, like it used to be a meth addict could keep his job and keep his home for like a couple months. You could still go to work on meth. You could still pay your bills until you got too far into it, but it would take like, average 2 to 3 months before you got bad this new math it's a matter of days it changes the chemical makeup of your brain and it produces psychosis and paranoia and so i do think that's fueling a lot of it it's easy to manufacture it's you know manufactured everywhere and it's cheap it's pro, pro it's everywhere and it's cheap that's the big problem so when i reached out to him and said, do you know anybody anywhere? Could you put me in contact with them? I was totally shocked. I sent him an email. I got an answer within 10 minutes.
2: And he said, no. <laughs> no. And, and if you read his book, you know how much research he
1: did. He traveled everywhere out, uh, no. And I forget what I wrote back, but oh, are you, no, oh, my God. I mean, can't you point me in any direction? And what he did say, he wrote back and he said that um, he thought it would be uh, beneficial if those of us, and I forget how he described what he thought I was, um, could speak to each other, who could, could get in contact with each other, who's going to, dealing with this huge problem because then as soon as somebody found a word a a program a something no matter how minuscule that helped we could all adapt it and keep keep trying to develop it more if we if we could get some sense of direction anywhere and collectively maybe we could so i did have some conversations with Venice Beach, California. Um, and oh yeah. I, they're
0: going through it.
1: Yeah. And so um, the interesting thing about, boy, I'm sorry, I'm digressing. The interesting thing about Venice Beach is that um, there's a big overpass of a freeway there. I mean, this is a really lengthy one. I can't remember which freeway that was. And that's where this, Venice Beach, the huge encampment, is. But this overpass goes on for quite a while. The tents go right up to a portion of it and stop. And there's no tents on the other side, even though the overpass is there.
2: The side with no tents is, I believe, Culver City, he said. They didn't legalize urban camping. so for me that's a piece of it the cities that seem to have legalized urban
1: camping seem to have the biggest problems
2: secondly this housing first that has been so embraced you the theory is that you
1: get somebody in housing get their living situation stabilized, and then you deal with their addiction issues, be it alcohol or drugs, employment, mental health, whatever is the underlying issue. You address it after you get them in permanent housing. I started looking at that housing first because that's Multnomah County. Our money is going to primarily low barrier shelters. There's no services offered, low barrier. Yeah. And so, because in theory, you put them in housing and then you provide the wraparound services that will stabilize them. Well, I won't tell you who, but there are people in city hall literally who said, that's just political rhetoric. Rhetoric. It does not exist in Portland. Now, that wasn't surprising to me, and I'm sure it isn't surprising to you, and I'm sure it isn't surprising to anybody who lives in Portland. We don't have those wraparound services. We don't have them because the, the social workers are crit, quitting in droves from burnout. Um, you know, Central City Concern had to close their detox center because they couldn't keep their employees safe. The ER rooms, most of the ER rooms in the city of Portland, and you know, all the exam rooms, there's huge posters that saying to assault a healthcare worker is a felony in the state of
2: Oregon. They don't exist. So this housing first thing that
1: has been embraced is a wonderful theory but we don't have the elements in the city of Portland necessary to make it successful.
2: My personal theory, which when you, if you air this, anybody who has anything contrary,
1: I would love to hear. My personal theory is I tried researching all the housing first research papers. There isn't, It's all like pre 2010 kind of thing. Anything after that that I could find were meta analysis of previous research papers. My theory is that Housing First doesn't work because the the demographics of our homeless population have changed. They
2: didn't have the new math when Housing First came up. That's my personal theory. I don't know if that's true. I would love to know if that's true.
1: So what they're using for data and research to justify all the money going into housing first,
2: I don't think reflects the population that we now have as homeless. I've watched... People who are truly down on their luck, and there are those people,
1: they seem to be getting help. The people with severe mental health issues, the people with meth, and the criminal element that absolutely refused to be acknowledged or addressed by the activists or City Hall, the real problems, They're this isn't working for them. We need to put more money. Housing First has a place in our overall strategy. But we need to put money into transitional housing equally. We need to put money into programs that address the underlying problem with homelessness. We don't give money to Bybee Lakes. We don't give money to the Blanche House. We don't give money to the Salvation Army. We don't give public money to the organizations who are providing the mental health, the addiction, making it a criteria to stay in their places. We're not helping, we're not supporting those. And I think that's one of our biggest flaws. We've called. Um, The Portland Street response, Hardesty's big, big campaign thing. I'm sorry, she's the biggest problem we've got with trying to address all of this. We had a guy camping on on, uh, Cesar Chavez Boulevard. He was running out into the lane of traffic and pulling his pants down and va the oncoming cars. He was throwing things at the oncoming cars. He was screaming at people walking down the sidewalk. There was a bus stop right there that bus drivers weren't even stopping at and people weren't using because this guy was there. There were neighbors calling constantly, worried about this guy getting hurt out on Cesar Chavez or or somebody, and then the person who hit that person, I don't care what the Reason the person got hit. You can't tell me that driver isn't going to be affected their whole lives for hitting a pedestrian. And calls after calls after calls. The the park rangers came out. The behavioral health unit came out. The Portland Street response came out. I mean, we saw them come out repeatedly,
2: repeatedly, repeatedly. Calm them down for the moment and drive off. Because we don't do civil commitment here.
1: In order to get somebody civilly committed, this is what a police officer said to my safety summit that I had in the neighborhood. You literally have to say to a judge If
2: we don't commit this person, they'll be dead in 24 hours. Again, I wanna point out the guy on Cesar Chavez was a threat
1: to the drivers, was a threat to the bus users, was a threat to the people trying to use the sidewalk or the park, but most of all, he was a threat to himself. That's called Loser, 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 Loser. And that's what we're going through right now.
0: Yeah. There was a New York Times article regarding the homeless in Houston. And it's entitled How Houston Moved 25,000 People from the Streets into Homes of Their Own from June 14th, 2022. And what struck me about the article was that there was no analysis about the fact that Houston doesn't have the kind of building regulations that the cities who are really struggling with homelessness, like Portland, San Francisco, Seattle, LA, these West Coast cities have all these building and code regulations. I talked to a contractor. He came in just to give me background information he wanted to help me out. He wouldn't come on the record because he's got ongoing projects in the city of Portland, but he was willing to talk off the record to give me background. And he said, it is absolutely impossible to build anything in this city unless you are contracted with the city to build homeless housing because of all the regulations. Um, and if you're building homeless housing you can make a lot. I mean, those are, he said, those are killer contracts and it's totally backed up. Um, There's a Portland Tribune story, November 17th, 2021, 60 unit housing project cost $390,000 per studio apartment. The headline was Portland to build $23 million 60 unit housing project for the homeless. And I've, I've also talked to subcontractors off the record who have worked on those homeless projects for the city of Portland. And they say they're extremely lucrative. These studios are beautiful. They look far better than the homes these subcontractors live in. 180 degree views of the Willamette River, beautifully designed, environmentally conscious, super good looking, all the bells and whistles. And it's just ridiculous, the amount that, that you don't have to spend that kind of money. It doesn't even make any sense. Also, June 15th, 2022, KGW did an article. In 10 years, Houston got 25,000 people off the streets and into housing. Could Portland do the same? This is KGW.com. And it talked about how they have wraparound services for these people. And they don't just approach the people they house once or twice. They approach them over and over and over and over again. It says the outreach workers are persistent. They don't just approach and leave if they don't want to move. They might revisit them five or more times to convince them. And then once they're housed, the wraparound services help them see the light at the end of the tunnel. So they're not putting them in an apartment walking away. They put them in an apartment, but with all of the services, the mental health, the substance abuse, the job training, et cetera, and I would bet you anything that they are not spending what we're spending per studio. There's no way in hell that Houston is spending $390,000 per studio apartment to house these people.
1: I don't, I, I think there are more economical ways that all this could be done. Um, um, Robert. Uh, Oh gosh, last name. What is he? He was one of the founders of uh, Join, and he built the building that used to be on St. Francis Park. And he, when he puts up affordable housing, it's so much cheaper than others do it. Or you look at the a veterans' home apartments on Sandy Boulevard, 38th and Sandy Boulevard, that they spent $850,000 on and now is condemned because of shoddy contracting work. I mean, part of the problem with any bureaucracy is it's bloated and slow and doesn't have a tendency to not pay attention to um, details. I think in part that's why you hand it off to vetted people with track records Um, the example like salt lake city has done a great job salt lake city is mormon the church has a lot of money the church provides a lot of social workers The, the church provides the wraparound services um Look at San Antonio. They've reduced 77% of the homeless in their city. They have a program somewhat similar to Bybee Lakes. That's private nonprofit that does like 400 a night. They have low barrier. They have apartments. They have, um, I mean, they have everything that I've been talking about in their program. So yeah, um, I mean-
0: also, one difference is the states and the cities that you're naming are are red. So I find it highly unlikely that they have the kind of bureaucracy that we do in Portland, Oregon, around building. I mean, anybody in the city of Portland who's ever tried to pull a permit to move a toilet a foot or so away from its current position in a bathroom knows it's it's nearly impossible to do it's nearly impossible to do anything i've talked to contractors who will no longer work in this city because it's too expensive and it's too difficult and it takes too long it's just not cost effective and frankly they're the psychology of it is just too frustrating
2: oh yeah yeah Right. Right. Truthfully,
1: uh, I know that Houston has overbuilt. They've destroyed their wetlands. That's why they get the flooding. That's why they have so much damage. Sure. I mean, I I think all this is a balancing act and I just frankly haven't.
0: I agree with you. I, I think it is a balancing act. What's weird is we're supposed to be this progressive environmental city and we've allowed this I mean, I won't say allowed because I I really don't feel like what's going on with the homeless is a quote unquote choice to the extent that they really know what they're doing, that they really know what they're choosing. I think their brains are hijacked by mental illness and drugs, but we're allowing them to self-destruct in this way that we are destroying our environment. We're destroying the Willamette River. We're destroying our parks. We're destroying our playgrounds. We're destroying our own green spaces. We're destroying, I mean, anybody who's seen what happened to Oaks Bottom can tell you what we're doing to the environment. That was a birding area. It was a protected area that was touted by the Audubon Society as as a habitat. We, We are the county, Multnomah County opened up a homeless shelter in Southeast Portland on Milwaukee Avenue near Selwood and Westmoreland neighborhoods. And, you know, there it's low barrier, but in general, it doesn't allow people in who are completely off their rocker. And the issue is that, you know, if you don't get allowed in, you, you camp outside of there. And there there's open air drug markets outside of there. Did you see,
1: uh, last Tuesday, the LA times did a big story on the homeless program in Portland. It was through the Kaiser family foundation. And, uh, that reporter had reached out last spring. It's a extensive article. She did a lot of research. She, um, she actually interviewed quite a few homeless and, and, I spent quite a bit of time with her. But she opens the article with somebody camping along the, I think the Columbia River, and how she likes to camp there because of the wildlife. And it used to be so beautiful. And now she's just so upset with all the garbage, the trash, we're killing the fish. I mean, this is somebody in a homeless, in an RV, in a homeless camp, complaining about it. Yeah, it was last Tuesday in the LA Times.
0: Yeah, it's called Not Safe Anymore. Portland Confronts the Limits of Its Support for Homeless Services, June 21st, 2022, by Angela Hart. And everybody should go check this out. There's a photo of a guy just amidst squalor and trash. It looks like something. I mean, if if he weren't white, it would look like something out of South Sudan. Or Somalia. And it says Paul Hunter is taken to sleeping on the roof of his RV, parked. This is the caption of the photo, parked along the stretch of Northeast 33rd Drive in Portland, Oregon. The interior is infested with rats, he says, as well as two rattlesnakes. And you're right, it begins with an anecdote about a woman named Michelle Ferris who is sifting through garbage and Debris that's accumulated along the roadway in northeast Portland. And it says she has vivid memories of this area alongside the Columbia River when it was pristine. Now, for miles in both directions, the roadside was lined with worn RVs and rusted boats doubling as shelter and spilling out from those RVs. The trash and cast offs from this makeshift neighborhood also stretched for miles, making for a chaos that unnerved her broken chairs, busted up car parts, empty booze bottles, soiled blankets. Discarded clothes, crumpled tarps every so often. It was more than she could bear. And she attacked the clutter around her own RV, trying furiously to organize the detritus into piles. I mean, this
1: is somebody in a homeless, in an RV, in a homeless camp complaining about it. Yeah, it was last Tuesday in the LA Times. I will tell you, reflecting on what you said about the contractor who won't come on air and the people neighbors, and even a staffer in City Hall. I think people
2: are growing increasingly frustrated with the, um, our two-tiered enforcement of the laws. Uh, I know somebody who got
1: a $149 ticket for an expired tag on their car. I got a call from somebody who got a $89 parking ticket. Uh, The contractor who gets called on something where right next door it's happening and they're not getting called on. I am the people who are watching the cars with no license plates at all. Um, yet, um, I just loaned my car to my son because he was taking a road trip with his fiance and, and his car is at 2003. And I noticed his tags were expired and he leaves me his car. So I have a car. And so,
2: and I'm thinking, I can't drive that car. It's got expired tags. I'm going to get a ticket, but. Other people don't get tickets for that. When the pandemic hit,
1: a neighbor on the street bordering the park had two sons come home from college. They have a single car garage and a single car driveway. They can park at the most two cars in the driveway. And now they have four cars. There's no parking on their side of the street ever. And across the street, there's no overnight parking. So from 10 p.m. to 5 a.m., there's no parking. And so, but the campers, the homeless campers have been parking on that no overnight parking street for years now. So when the sons come home from college because of the pandemic and they're all in quarantine, well, where are we going to put our cars? Mom and dad say, well, just put a, park them across the street from the house. They're not enforcing the no overnight parking got up in the morning, they had parking tickets. None of the other cars that had been there all night had parking tickets.
0: They said, yeah, yeah, the message is really, the message from the city is really the homeless will do what they want and the rest of you will pay
2: for it.
1: But it has, it has spread. I have never seen more people run red lights. I've never seen more people run stop signs. I have never seen, I mean, i honestly, I'm talking law-abiding citizens. I was out with a friend, and we stopped, and we got out of the car, and we start to walk into the building, and I said, hey,
2: aren't you going to plug the parking meter? And she said, why? Look at all these tents. They're not supposed to be here. Why do I have
1: to pay when nobody else has to pay? This is a, what I would call a law abiding tax paying person.
2: We don't have police officers. We don't have uh, traffic. We don't have. Listen,
1: let's be honest here. Everybody behaves better when there's somebody watching. Nobody's watching. And worse yet, they are allowing a whole segment of the people who live in Portland to get a free ticket, nope, poor
2: choice of words, a free pass on tickets. That's not right. Well, I, I, I did a safety summit. I Referencing our earlier conversation.
1: I don't think living in fear is a good way to live. I don't think you're able to have good conversations, work on solutions. If you're coming from a place of fear, it's really a barrier to any kind of discussion if you're just afraid. So I sent a survey out to the neighborhood. I had 10 safety concerns and I asked people to rank them. And then based on the responses, I went looking for the answers. Homeless, but I was totally shocked. Um, I sent out 130, I think, 135, something like that. I got 85 back. So I consider that a legitimate survey. And um, many people wrote comments.
2: And when I went to bed that night, I was crying. Um, this is this is my
1: neighborhood. This is my city. This is my community that I love so much. And it was so heartbreaking what they were writing to
2: me. The fear, the sadness, the mourning, the departures. You can't do this
1: anymore. We're leaving. Um, so many people wrote 10. You had to rank them from one to 10. So many people ranked every single subject 10. I'm sorry, TJ, but everything's bad in this city. So I sought people who could come and address. So at our general membership meeting, I had BOAC, Bureau of Emergency Communication, because 911 and non-emergency isn't working. Uh, they were really good. They were really good. And frankly, I was impressed with how they're trying to address something that I don't see how they're going to, but they were very good. I had the fire bureau, the fire marshal.
2: And I had, what was the third one? I'll come back to that. And then a week later, I had a safety summit. Where I
1: had the behavioral health unit. They do a great presentation on what you should do if you encounter somebody in a
2: mental health crisis. I had uh, PBOT parking enforcement. And I had crime prevention, City of Crime Prevention,
1: which is now the Office of Livability, and they don't do crime prevention. That was a waste of time.
2: But anyway, I had people addressing what was going on in our community. And
1: the pushback on the, oh, I had our NERT officer, our
2: Neighborhood Response Officer. And the pushback from the neighborhood, what I heard most often,
1: why aren't you towing these cars? Why do they not have plates? Why are you ticketing
2: us? Um, Just the lack of rules and regulations that
1: we need as a society. The only way we can all live cohesively is if we're all following the same rules. The rules in, I mean, we're all competing for space. We're all competing for services. We're all, all of us are competing for limited resources. That's just the nature of the beast right now. But it seems like some people are getting bumped up to the front of the line And
2: the people in the back of the line are the ones, for the most part, that are obeying the rules. It was really an eye-opener to me. The sense of despair, the sense of
1: chaos, the garbage. They just let all these little rules go and do not understand this is our city leadership the cumulative effect
2: and i don't know how they're going to get it back are are you going to stay in portland i went to school in denver i
1: couldn't wait to get back to portland I never in my life envisioned a time that I would ever even think about leaving Portland.
2: But I have to admit, uh, we've discussed it.
0: What do you think would tip you over the edge to actually taking action and and moving? Like like so many
2: others have, have done. Right now, what holds me here is community.
1: I have a hard time thinking about walking down the street and not seeing faces
2: I know. I have a hard time thinking of... I mean... I just love community and neighborhood. I love it
1: so much. And Portland as big as it is,
2: has always seemed like a small town. I think when that disappears. So maybe when enough of your
0: community moves out, if that if that occurs, that that might cause you to to look around and just not see familiar faces, yeah. which is really sad and upsetting. I mean, not that I blame them. In fact, I'm jealous of them. I mean, not that I blame them for leaving, but um, it's sad to think about the
2: the people we're losing, the good when people you're in, when you're
1: When you're fearful, it shrinks your life. Like, I didn't want to go to your office.
0: Yeah, we talked prior to this. And when you realized that I recorded downtown, it was too scary. And I understand.
1: That shrunk my life. Yeah. Uh, My husband rides his bike to work every day uh, downtown. I now worry about him. I didn't used to. But because we have electric bikes going the wrong way, we have chaos. We have chaos on our streets. We have no parking patrol. We have no traffic cops. We have no, we don't have any of that stuff around us that helps keep order in the city. Um, I don't go, we don't go out at night much. Uh, I was going to be in Bend this weekend, and then Antifa announced they were going to have a gathering in our park. I can't leave my house empty when Antifa comes to my neighborhood.
2: Um, it shrinks your life. so all these things a wonderful city has to
1: offer a big city look good are they if you don't can't use them or won't use them. I don't want to park my car anywhere. I don't want my
2: catalytic converter ripped off. Seriously. I, I, I put out safety
1: tips to the neighborhood all the time. The last one was I want you to go into your garage and look at everything in your garage. I want you to add up the value of all the stuff that's occupying your garage. So your car cannot go into your garage for safety. And then I want you to think about what the cost of your car is versus all those things in your garage that is utilizing that spot. You, uh, I have, People who had the clubs on their steering wheel and they're in the street cut in half and the car's gone. Um, Yeah. Parking up next to your house doesn't matter. At night, you better not leave any of your windows open. I don't care how hot it is. You can't leave anything in your yard. Your, your, Your life just gets smaller and smaller and smaller. And I think that will be the time
0: that both we'll consider leaving. It's, it's also so traumatizing, as you mentioned, for these homeless people who are, who are living in all of this destruction and anarchy and chaos that literally Antifa wants. I mean, they say that they're anarchists, um, but it's, it's so traumatizing to watch what they're going through and to imagine what it would be like to be, to be them, to be in the throes of a horrible addiction or mental illness and imagine them sober, imagine them medicated and well, and seeing themselves in these circumstances and seeing, observing what they're going through. And then all these, the rest of the the citizens that are in the midst of all of their trauma it, it's very traumatic for everybody. You go to any, really any other city that's not on the West Coast, forget Seattle and San Francisco, LA, Portland, but you, you know, we traveled to Chicago. I mean, Chicago doesn't look like this. Chicago is a big yeah. city. New York yeah, City surprised. doesn't look like this.
1: Yeah, I was surprised how cleaned up Chicago was.
0: And New York. I mean, walk through yeah. Times Square. You can't sit down on the sidewalk. They won't let you.
1: And let me tell you something um, that I learned years ago
2: when I was very involved in homeless programs. And and
1: the worst thing about being homeless is not feeling like a human being. The worst thing is
2: feeling invisible. I heard this repeatedly. Repeatedly. Whenever there was somebody on
1: the street, I never ever gave money. There's food all over Portland. They don't need money. If you're giving them money, they're going to use it on drugs or alcohol. I had homeless advocates tell me that back in the day. But they're human beings. And so I never walked by any homeless person ever without saying, hi, how's your day going and smiling at them because they're human beings and they deserve respect and they deserve to be acknowledged. I can't do that anymore. I don't know if that person's on meth. I don't know if that person has mental health issues. I don't know by making eye contact with them if I will be a target I can't walk down the street anymore, downtown Portland, and smile at somebody and say hello.
2: Which is something I didn't like about New York City. I mean, hi. I, you don't stop or anything, but everybody everybody I encounter, I want them to get a... Oh, my God, do I
1: sound like a polyunic? I want them to have a positive feel, even if it's just for a second. You know, when you have somebody smile at you, you just feel better for a moment. Well, we're living in hell. We all need that moment. I cannot
2: do that. It's a risk to me. Smaller. What is happening in Laurelhurst right now? What is the status? Well, this is one of those factors. Um, when Stop the Sweeps made us their poster child for whatever. When Antifa made us ground zero. I, again, have a Pollyanna kind of an attitude.
1: I thought that they truly cared about, I I thought we were having a difference of opinion. These people have a right to camp wherever they want to. They're human beings. I don't agree with them, but I thought that that was truly their values, their ethics, their opinion. Everybody has a right to their own
2: opinion. Unfortunately, I now have changed my position. The city has
1: since Sam Adams came in and um, became Mayor Wheeler's enforcer, and he's very good at that job. Um, they have done a lot. I mean, I've seen improvement downtown. I've seen improvement in Old town. I've seen improvement here.
0: Temporary, though, right?
1: Well, having telling you I've seen improvement, you
2: also had two 80-year-old men attacking. I mean, so they started posting. I had a conversation with somebody.
1: I write to City Hall regularly. I have a list of about 38 people who get all my emails in City Hall. I have... um, cumulative from a neighborhood when something starts going on uh, we have a lot of cars rifled or we're getting houses i mean they're not just breaking into our homes they're defecating on our beds i mean it's not just criminals there's
0: people are breaking in to your homes and pooping on your beds
1: that has happened yes not just the. it sounds like more than once yeah well they burglar the house but it's not just burglaring the house um, one time they, they left the feces on the front door step. One time it was in a bed. One time it was smeared on walls. Um, it's not like happens every time. I'm just saying, this sure. is not just criminal activity. This is a statement. So city hall kept, they keep, oh man. The decision coming out, boy, am I, digressing now. I'm really sorry. This is hard to track. The decision coming out of Boise that they use for the justification of their city policies. I went to the Harvard Business Law Review and I read that decision. And I read Harvard Law Review's analysis
2: of that decision. That decision does not say they cannot sweep. That's what they tell you. The city attorneys in the city of Portland tell you
1: that. That is not what that decision says. That decision says you
2: cannot arrest them for camping. It doesn't say you can't keep moving them.
0: Well, and you my understanding is you can arrest them as long as you have somewhere for them to go.
1: Yes, that's part of it. Right? But they say they cannot move them because of Boise. That's not true. Now, as as much as the activists will tell you how cruel it is to sweep, how cruel it is to move them, or again, back to that balancing act that they're doing, moving them constantly means they can't Bring in the mattresses, bring in the broken down cars. like they start with the tent, and then it gets bigger and, bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger.
0: Yeah, I didn't even think about that. That is one positive aspect of these quote unquote, sweeps or cleaning up these homeless encampments is they're not allowed to grow out of control. And once they are, once they're that big, And they're taking up entire city blocks and they're multiple story pallet structures. And, um, it really, when that's not allowed to keep going, it does change for the better the neighborhood. It changes. I mean, they're doing all these articles about how it's working in old town, I guess, you know, it's, it's, it's changing the crime rate. It's decreasing the amount of crimes. It's decreasing the amount of vandalism. It's de it, these are chop shops. These are open-air drug markets, really. These are human trafficking hubs. These are dens of criminal activity. And when that's not allowed to occur because they can't accumulate the garbage and the mattresses and the 1500 bikes and the Vespas and the, I mean, you name it, the motorcycles. Yeah, that's a good point. I mean, that that's a Positive about the sweeps because I was just thinking, oh, they sweep and then they move across the street, but there are positives to that.
1: And so, that being said, we, I kept pushing on City Hall about not letting these encampments grow, not letting these encampments grow. If as soon as you get five, six, seven in a spot, get them out of there, don't let these grow, don't let these grow. Well, I had a call, unsolicited call from somebody in city hall who asked not to be named. So I'm not going to name them and said, hey, what we've been doing in city hall or what we've been doing in Old Town, you know, sweeping every two weeks. It's really um, worked in terms of the first time we swept. Now, these numbers are wrong. I'm I'm just giving you an example, but I didn't write anything down. The first time we swept, we had five people go into shelters. We went back in two weeks, and that time we swept, 10 people went into shelters. We went back in two weeks, and 30 went into shelters. Wow, it seems if we keep moving them, and they realize
2: they can't just come back and camp, they'll actually go into shelters. Duh really Duh. and so I noticed they swept Laurelhurst,
1: they came back in two weeks, they swept Laurelhurst, they came back in two I, I'm two or three weeks, but they this they just did their third or
2: fourth sweep. And it's getting smaller. But what I didn't recognize, I think
1: our encampment in particular is embedded with anarchists or whoever they are. We have activists there
2: who are keeping that camp alive. We are unfortunate. So these are like
0: presumably housed people like Beaverton Benjamin who are going, perhaps going home know. to the suburbs at night, but occupying this space. I I, 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 I I, was thinking about, I was thinking about that when I read the article about the Laurelhurst planters um, that said that neighbors put up, is that right? I, it, it was- it was or it was planting structures to try to decrease encampments and the people that they were interviewing about that and the people that were decrying these planters were not homeless people these were quote unquote houseless advocates
1: that's my impression
2: the, the i i I try to take a count every day
1: and try to take photographs every day. And I have to be careful. So I don't do it every
2: day like I used to. Um, Because now I I have to be careful. Um, But I got approached
1: by a, a, a guy named, called himself Michael. And he was homeless and living in his van which we have lots of them around the park. So I don't know which van. And we ended up having quite a lengthy conversation um, with me saying what I usually do, you know, this camping isn't safe for anybody. This, this isn't, the campers aren't safe here either. And this shouldn't, this shouldn't be a divisive, a divisive issue between the housed and the unhoused because none of us are safe. And so, you know, we should be pushing on people, City Hall, whose fault it is, to come up with better
0: solutions. Yeah, coming together seems like that would be powerful.
1: Yeah. And I was having this great conversation with him and uh, told him my name and shook his hand. And he told me a story about sleeping in his van. And he, always keeps his window open a little in case anybody's messing around on the outside. Oh. And he told me he used to have a 9 to 5 job. But then he realized he was buying into the capitalist society and what a hypocrite and he wasn't going to buy into that. So he's he's homeless by choice. At that point I said, "Well, I don't agree with that statement." But I'll tell you what, I'm in the park all the time, here's my name, and when you see me walking, come walk with me, let's, let's continue this conversation. And I shook his hand. And he told me this story about being in his van recently and heard somebody outside muttering. And when he went to open the door, it was the middle of night, open the night, or late at night, went to open the door to step out of his van to find out who this person was by his vehicle he got sprayed with bear spray in his face all over him and the guy jumped in his vehicle took off bumped him with his car on the way and just took off down the street and he's screaming in agony I don't know what bear spray does but he's screaming in agony it's in his eyes he's just Screaming, screaming, and then he starts. I need a towel. I need a towel. And then finally, somebody comes out of one of those big houses and threw him a towel and went back in the houses. And then he wiped his face and he looked up and all these people were in the windows and watching and nobody helped them. And you know, white, rich, privileged people and blah 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 blah. And then he went off on that tirade. Well, unbeknownst to him. I had gotten a report the week before recently with neighbors and the report was last night there was somebody out in the middle of the street screaming and raging like obviously in some mental health crisis but he had something on him and and he was just like like a crazy person so I ran out there and I threw him a towel, and then ran back in the house. And then after he used the towel, he looked up and started screaming at us in our window, you fucking rich people, you privileged people, you can't even help somebody.
2: I believe both of those stories were accurate. And what was the problem there?
1: The problem was the house people are so afraid They don't know what to do, legitimately afraid. They have children in their home. There's somebody in the, homeless guy is outraged. Nobody would even help him after he got attacked, which wasn't seen.
2: I could see exactly what went down And the problem was lack of enforcement, the chaos in our city, the danger everybody feels, and once again, fear.
0: You know, Renee Gonzalez talks about this silent majority that I think he's relying on in his campaign with the hope that he'll be elected to city council. Do do you think do you think they exist? Do you think there is a silent majority in Portland that feels the same way as a lot of these housed people in Laurelhurst? And a lot of the people that you described who are really sick of bearing the financial brunt of all these issues and seeing I wouldn't call it no return and negative return on their tax money. Just worse, worsening conditions, apocalyptic conditions.
1: Well, another thing I say constantly, I mean, to anybody who will listen, and I'm telling your listeners, the good need to get louder. The good need to get louder. Unfortunately, the very vocal minority who have created all this gets all the media attention. Gets all of City Hall's attention.
0: Positive media attention.
2: Constant. And we're not heard. I think a lot of people believe that we can't be heard. But that's not true. I had a reporter from the,
1: I don't know if I should name a national a very well respected national newspaper come out last year and I walked him through the park and we had a very long story a very long time I pulled out my notebook all the things I talked to the city about documenting there I told him everything he called me a few days later to tell me he was not going to do Laurelhurst Park
2: He wasn't going to do the story.
1: He wasn't going to use us. Because I'm trying to think of how we said it. Our situation is an anomaly. Our situation isn't a homeless story. Our situation is so embedded in Antifa and anarchists that ours is really a political story.
2: Laurel Hurst.
0: Yeah, I think, they, I think that person might be right.
2: Did that resonate with you? At the moment,
1: it did not. And now I totally see it. They come and sweep and they're back. They come and sweep and they're back. They come and sweep and they're back. And they're, it's the same people that keep coming back. And yeah, I don't think I think that if you're a homeless person, why would you set up again someplace that you're going to have to
2: move if you're I'm not saying homeless people don't come and join them. But if you know this is going to happen over and over and over again. Why would you do that? That's a lot of work. I, what
0: I don't understand, I and maybe it's just there's nothing to understand there and there's simply no long-term thought going on because Antifa uh, Antifa's kind of taken on a, it seems to me, almost like a religious status with, with the true believers. It's like trying to convince a Mormon that Joseph Smith didn't really talk to God and Jesus or... Trying to convince a an evangelical Baptist that God doesn't exist. But I don't I don't understand who Antifa thinks is gonna pay for all these rich taxes that keep passing handily, like this homeless tax, this preschool tax, all these services that they want. Um, because uh these people are just gonna continue to leave. I mean, I I don't know if if you continue to make Portland completely business unfriendly and you point at house people and call them rich racists,
2: who, who, who do you expect to pay for all your programs, your pet projects? I don't understand
1: why they pick on small businesses. I don't understand why they went through Hollywood and attacked those are small businesses. Yeah,
0: people don't understand this. It's not just Starbucks and the banks. Now, they're certainly favorites. But there is a black woman-owned business at the bottom of my building. The owner is a good friend. And she has been vandalized into oblivion because she's street level with a window. And in the name of social justice, they're vandalizing black small business owners.
1: Yeah, and and or they, they're not safe in their business. You can't be a woman alone in a shop.
0: She keeps it locked, yeah, she's not but, safe.
1: How do you do business when you've got a locked door?
0: Right, or retail business.
1: Yeah, uh, yeah, I don't, I think it's this burn it to the ground mentality and build it back up again. And what what they think, how they think that's gonna function. I'm sorry, we see it with um, Hardesty defunding the police. What what did she think was going to happen? And when she was asked that question, because she won't say if she'll further defund, we had a candidates forum. And she won't commit whether she's still going to defund more. I mean, we point blank asked the dean, Hardesty, and Renee. Do you think the girls at the right should increase, stay the same, or decrease? The other two answered. She said, well, I'm waiting to see what the DOJ says is the appropriate number of police before I answer that question. And the dean immediately said, maybe you should have seen that report before you defunded them. The DOJ is concerned that we can't even actually uh, fulfill the the requirements of a police force because we're so understaffed.
0: Well, and of course she called the police on her rideshare driver. Well, she- Remember that?
1: Yeah, she managed to get a civilian review board on the initiative measure and passed. And that's been two years, and it's still not even began yet, the process. So again, referencing the anarchists, you can't even get a civilian review board figured out in two years, but you're going to burn down everything, and we're going to rebuild. How's that going to work? Who would want to be a cop in Portland right now? Tell me that. Maybe after the election, if Hardesty loses, we'll have better recruiting, but who would want this job? And frankly. How do you do a job where you know you have a target on your back and there's more weapons out there? You're outgunned. How do you go to work every day if you have any intelligence, you're you're operating from a place of fear, and expect good decisions to be made? And you're talking to somebody who's been a police accountability activist for years. I am- Yeah, that was
0: one of the things you and Beaverton Benjamin agreed on.
1: But how? Why? I mean, we have to have law enforcement.
2: Why would you come to this city? Why would you want to be a cop here?
1: And here's what her answer was. Her answer was, and Hardesty went on to say, well, the problem is they can't even find cops. I mean, that's the problem. You know, you should be looking at the police force of why people don't want to be a cop here. You should see what's wrong with our police force. And I thought, oh my, no, they don't want to be a police force here because you keep bad-mouthing them, defunding them and tying their
2: hands. this summer, Everybody is in a concerned state with Roe v. Wade and mass demonstrations, which start out peaceful. I'm everybody's pretty worried about this summer. People in city hall, people in the police bureau. I
1: am. You start having mass demonstrations of any kind. They may start out legitimate, but that's just an excuse for Antifa. So let me tell you one other little anecdote. Another Antifa kind of guy. I said, to, I just had a brief interaction with him. Again, me
2: being friendly. I genuinely like people. I called him honey. When things got really ugly, when Trump came into office and just
1: hate was flowing everywhere in every direction, I tried to think of a phrase that I could use habitually that was soft and warm. I'm an old lady. I know that. So I thought, oh, sweetie. Oh, no, yuck! that sounds
2: old lady-ish. Well, I decided that honey was, sounded too endearing, like too personal. I decided on dear. This was a conscious choice. I tell my checkout person at the grocery store, well, thank you, dear. Um, How are you doing today, dear? In, In my heart and mind, it was a warm, pleasant, positive thing to say to somebody, dear. Just a little extra thing on top of the smile. Had a very brief conversation with an Antifa guy and said, oh, thank you, dear. And he turned around and you don't have to be so condescending. And I was so taken aback. I said, what? Oh,
1: you, and and he, I didn't recognize him as an Antifa guy. He was in the park doing something that I was questioning him about very nicely. And um, I just thought he was a park, somebody in the park who didn't understand the rules. And I said, "Oh, thank you, dear." When he,
2: when I pointed it out, and um, well, you don't have to be so condescending. I said, "What? Well, you know,"
1: uh, he said sarcastic. He said a couple negative things, and I really didn't know what he was talking about. And I really want to understand because I wasn't being condescending, and I wasn't being rude, and I wasn't being anything he was accusing me of. I said, "I really don't understand what.
2: What did I say that?" Offended you so much? And he said, Oh, dear. I said, Dear, I didn't have any of those intentions you're uh, uh,
1: describing. And I thought it was a pleasant, warm way to greet people. And he said, well, it's not what you said. It's how you said it. Dear, which is not how I said it at all. So I walked away from that conversation thinking, well, I shouldn't say dear to people. I mean, now I can't smile at people. Now I can't make eye contact with people. And now I can't say something
2: nice to someone because it's Perceived as nasty. And I just thought, what? I don't know what I have left. If you can't smile at people, if you can't look them in the eye, and honey is perceived as, I don't know. What the hell's happened to us? Do do you think Portland will ever come back? I think when my answer is no is when I will be leaving.
1: I think we are on a tipping point. And I feel like if I leave now,
2: it's gonna be partly my fault for it not tipping into the direction it should be.
0: You know, you said the good people have to get louder and Renee and I, Renee Gonzalez and I had a conversation about this This topic of the, how do we get the silent majority that, that he thinks exists, that he has faith exists to get louder. And we agreed that one of the obstacles is what you've mentioned over and over is being called what those of us who consider ourselves who have traditionally always considered ourselves left-wing progressive people, of which he said he was one of, and and he's Latino, um, being called racist, being called white supremacists. They these, this Antifa faction, this far-left fringe faction that is so loud, that gets so much positive media attention, can lob pretty effectively those kind of epithets at those of us who are, quote-unquote, following the rules, who are housed, who are shouldering the burden, the financial burden of all these programs and taxes and, and trying to stay positively involved in our communities who are going to work every day, staying off drugs, seeing our therapists, taking our medication. Um, not that any of that's easy. And, and I, don't, I don't blame anybody who has an addiction. I, I think it, it would be
2: horrific. Um, but
0: it, when you start getting, as you know, when you start getting called racist, it, it stings because it's coming from people you perceive to be your own. It's coming from other progressives, and yes, they're not—they're further. I would say they're so far left they're right, because they're—they're they're so they're they're practic- they're anarchists, right? So they're they're not just libertarian. They're they're anarchists, um, but they're it is coming from people you would normally perceive to be allies, people whose when Antifa first started emerging. I thought, I felt like, what is the harm in this, when they started emerging in Portland, I feel like, what is the harm in this movement? They're against white supremacy. They're disrupting Proud Boys conventions. They're protecting people from white supremacists, the real white su- supremacists, not people like you, not people like Latino Renee Gonzalez, whose dad was a farm worker, but- people who align themselves with anti-Semitic and, and literal racist ideology. And I think that the people that, that don't want to come on this podcast and the people, maybe a lot of the people that you've talked to that want to remain anonymous, I think a lot of it is they they, they have not wrapped their heads around how to function, continue to function in this city being publicly deemed a racist by people who have so much power over the media, positive power.
2: They have a
1: lot of power over the, in the media. They have a lot of power in city. In
0: politics, yes.
1: I mean, look at this charter reform thing. We so badly need charter reform and they want 12 commissioners where we have four. They won't say if they're part-time or full-time, won't say what they're going to pay. And they're making $125,000 a year now, plus benefits. 80% of their time's running bureaus, which they won't have to do anymore. So, are they going to be part time or are they going to be full time? We're going to go from four to 12. We're going to triple the size of our city leadership. And when I I asked why
2: it was to ensure diversity. Did they look, I mean, this was, I said, have you looked at our city council?
1: There, I spent an entire day, again, that's me and my research, looking at every city in this country, tried to look at every city in this country, that's our size. Nobody has that many city commissioners. Nobody. And a vast majority of them are part-time if they have a city manager. Seattle has nine.
2: San Francisco has 11. Look at how big they are. We're going to have 12. Like, I'm a self-proclaimed hippie.
1: I was a hippie. I look in the mirror, I still see that hippie. I hear things coming out of my mouth and I think, when the hell did you move from liberal? Why, when did you, it's like,
2: I don't see that my, I have changed, but it's like everybody moved left.
1: The extremes of the right, the extremes of the left aren't good for anybody. And what I don't understand about the far left progressives, I don't even call myself progressive. My friend who isn't very much a progressive says, oh, I, no, 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 TJ, you're a pragmatic. I don't know what that means.
2: But anyway, I don't see how they don't see what's coming their way. We're going to get a reaction. We have swung so far left. We're going to get a reaction swinging the other way. And it's going to be equally ugly. And I don't see why they don't see that.
0: What do you say, what would you say to people out there who are listening, who consider themselves to be part of this silent majority, these good people that you were saying need to speak up, who are afraid of being called all these things that, that you've been called? Um, how do you get past being called racist? How do you, how do you keep going? And how, do you, how did you, how, what would you say to them to
2: boost their courage?
1: It's always easier to speak up when you're not the only one speaking up. It's always easier to take action when you're not the only one standing there. You know friends, you know neighbors, you know people who have your same concerns as you do. You're not alone.
2: Make a pact with them. Hey, I'm gonna send a letter to the mayor. Why don't you do it too?
1: Hey, I'm willing to um, make an appointment and see if we can get in to see whoever, whatever your issue is. Why don't you come with me? It's always easier, you know, to do anything if you're not by yourself. I started a reporting group. I didn't realize you could only have 50 on an outlet group. I'm a techno idiot. So now I have two and I'm getting ready to start my third. And some of them are married couples sharing the email address. Some of them are block designated block captains. So I think I have about 150 in the neighborhood that are on this reporting list. Whenever I send anything to City Hall, I CC them. Whenever I take photographs of anything that's alarming, I CC them. We have a series of break-ins down a block at two in the morning in video cameras on every house that this guy, I CC him. With that CC comes a reporting list that I made up. I understand not everybody's as, as organized or invested as I am. So they have available to them every city commissioner's email address, every mayor, the police, the fire, the fire marshals, the city attorneys, the they have a list. The reporting system for campers, the one point of contact, you name it, it's on that list.
2: And I just try to lead by example. But you wouldn't
1: believe how many emails City Hall gets from us because I hear it. I got the call from City Hall. Well, you know, you people
2: just keep sending us these emails. I'm just a little teeny example. But I if I send a particularly good letter to the
1: city council about something, oh, that was a great one, and it spurred somebody's thought, I, I they start CCing me their emails to City Hall.
2: And I I mean, we're not going to fix everything, but their City Hall, and I've been doing this three, four, five years maybe, and it just has steadily
1: grown every time we talk to anybody in City Hall. Oh yeah, Laurel Hurst. It isn't because we're white. It isn't because we're rich. It isn't because we're racist. It's just because we've raised our voices. And anybody can do that.
0: I I think that Antifa and these activists have realized that if you scream racist at somebody publicly, it will shut everybody else down. And it's very effective. It's just incredibly effective. But once you, I think once people realize that that is just a, a smear tactic, and and of course, of course, you know you're you're not a racist. I mean, you've got to be good at self talk too, right? You've got to be good at reminding yourself who you really are, and and the kind of values you really do stand for, and that you that we're on Antifa's side to the extent. They're fighting against white supremacy to the extent they're fighting against these far right factions. Of course we are. Of course we are in regard to police abuse. But dear,
2: I did it out of habit. No, I I don't mind it. (laughs) Okay. But dear, think about your daily life. Like not this issue.
1: Think about your daily life. You've had a bad day. You had a fight with your husband, your child, you embarrassed your teenage kid, and you want to cry because they just eviscerated you with their teenage angst. What do you do? You pick up the phone and you call your best friend. You pick up the phone and you call your, you you say, hey, let's go have a cup of coffee. You reach out to somebody. To support you and get you past that. This isn't new. We all know this.
0: We I wonder, I wonder if COVID has contributed to some of this silence because possible. it's so it's just we've we've been siloed and we were shut down for so long and we were all scared for so long. And we got used to holding up, not picking up the phone, text, texting, picking up the phone by texting, but not talking yeah. audibly. Not meeting in person. Downtown is so apocalyptic. You can't go to the coffee shops you used to go to. I, I wonder if all that's sort of contributed to this it's lack of community. Idea.
1: But I was, um, after that deer conversation with that guy, I was really devastated. I was like kind of trying to figure out what I could say and what I couldn't do. And I was walking. Oh, I was at a garage sale. Up at the corner, and a neighbor walked in who I hadn't seen literally in over a year. Um, and um, walked up to me, and as soon as she saw me, came over to me, TJ, thank you so much. You know, that letter, and she cited a letter, and you just worked so hard and gave me a hug. I left a garage sale. I didn't buy anything, but I left there with a lot more value than when I walked in. I was ready to go home. And write another email and stay on top of this. You know people in your neighborhood. We all know somebody who's, who's. when I was a kid, the, the person I never liked, you know. But she'd always get to my mom about picking her roses before. I mean, we know who our neighborhood leaders are. We know those people. We all know those people. But I will tell you right now. Being one of those people, I get very tired of hearing, TJ, you need to do something about this. TJ, why don't you, and I now say, I don't mind helping you do this. Let's, let's. So you do have to be a bit of a recruiter, but don't be afraid of that because we've all done it in our lives at one point or another for something. Give me a break. You don't remember when your kids were in grade school? Didn't you know all the moms? Didn't you know who to call if you couldn't get to school to pick up your kid? Didn't you know? I mean, we have those instincts in us. We all do. We always have. We just have to find them again and direct them at something else.
2: Hey, hey, have you ever lost your dog? Man you got a whole bunch of people helping you instantly you you know they're there they're not that hard to find we just all have to try harder on a daily basis
0: do you do you think there really is i mean i guess we'll see what happens with renée's election but I'm starting to wonder if there really is a silent majority because when Vadim Mazierski lost in the primaries and when Joanne sailed through to the general, I mean, she had a fair amount of votes.
2: Um, I wasn't, I
0: wasn't, I can't say I was surprised, but there was a piece of me that, that felt deflated, that felt, I, I know it was a pipe dream to imagine that Vadim Mazierski and Renee Gonzalez were going to run ag- run off against each other, but and she had a good campaign, and she's a woman of color, and I think people want to see a woman of color represented on city council. So I think she has all those things going for her. Um, she's an incumbent, that's tough to beat. Um, but I, you know, and when I watched Dan Ryan sa- sail through. Stephen Cox was a totally viable candidate. Um, Bali was a little far right for a lot of us, but the, the the teeny tiny, he had some good ideas about homelessness and funding the police. And, and according to the DNC and, and President Biden, funding the police is popular. I mean, President Biden said in his State of the Union, fund the police. So is Portland... Is it possible that there isn't a silent majority, and Portland is just this fringe outlier that that wants to that wants no, things this way? No, no,
1: no, no.
0: What 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 do you make of it? What's going on?
1: Absolutely not. No, no. There. There is a silent majority. There's a huge silent majority, and we need to stop being silent.
2: Are they not showing up to the polls? Are they hopeless? Are they
0: not educating themselves about?
1: I think that it's always hard to be an incumbent. I was not surprised with that race. I really wish to hell either Vadine or Renee would have filed against Ryan. God, yes. I,
0: I think we all done. did. Yeah. I think all yeah. of us in that camp did.
1: I also think that, uh, Election between two people is quite different than three. You now have a definite target. Um, I think that her numbers for an incumbent were bad.
2: I take hope in that. I am tired. You know, judging people on the color of their skin cuts both ways. Anybody
1: who just looks at uh, the color of somebody's skin. I mean, I understand, honestly, if it's a tie, if it's a real tie, everybody's qualified, everybody's on the skills, on their intellect, on their persona it's a total tie. I understand going to ethnicity or religion or some other factor I get that but my god the first thing you have to go is qualifications that's
2: the first thing you got to look at and I'm tired of people judging on color of skin If that's really all you got to offer, whatever color of skin you have, you you got a problem.
1: Anytime you swing to any kind of extreme, you're going to have problems. And we are just really swinging too far in one direction and need to come back. Really. We can be liberal. We don't need to be so far left.
0: You said that Antifa and and people aligned with them who are in power like Joanne Hardesty, they they want to tear it all down and build something new or build something back up. I, I talked to a journalist, Nancy Rommelman, who used to have a coffee shop here. It was basically run out of town for a, politically incorrect YouTube show that she had with a now real housewife actually, which is its own kind of, kind of interesting story. This woman named Liam McSweeney. Um, and they they were just kind of a, trying to objectively look at the me too movement from a female perspective, talking about sort of the overreach of a lack of believe all women and, and when there, where there's a lack of process, how there might be abuse of that system and, Talking about people like Alf, Al Franken, who who and Aziz Ansari, who may have been, you know, certainly were not in the Harvey Weinstein camp, and were really put on blast for that. just um, yeah. destroyed her business. She be- she now resides in New York City, and she believes that um, Antifa doesn't have a plan for building. They don't want to build anything. They don't have a plan for building. They just want to tear things down. Would you agree with that?
2: I, yes, but I think they think that tearing everything down would be
1: an improvement. I do think that. I think that the issues they choose, they don't really care about. I don't see how anybody supporting an unsanctioned camp living in filth, squalor, in danger, um, assaults, criminality.
2: Anybody who thinks that's the way people should live (laughs) don't care about the homeless. Um, When you're trying to peacefully
1: demonstrate that Black lives matter and you're creating rioting and tearing down a city, you don't really care about Black Lives Matter. I don't think they really care about any of these causes they truly I just I don't think they'll care about Roe versus Wade either.
2: I think they're just looking for a reason to create chaos. I don't really think they care about any of those things. I think they're just pawns.
0: Right. But you're, you're saying um, the underrepresented, the historically oppressed groups that that people like Antifa profess to care about, like our minority communities are just, those are the pawns that they're using. They're cloaks yeah. to hide behind and, and distract and cause chaos.
1: Yes. Yes, I do.
0: And they're safe cloaks because we all, in Portland, we've self-selected to live here because we see ourselves as, or saw ourselves as progressive people. And we can all agree on um, police accountability. Maybe not all, but the majority of us can agree, I think, would say we can agree on police accountability. We can agree on
2: Equitable protecting those who are
0: historically government. oppressed. Yes, absolutely. Yes. yes. And so well, it's a, it's a very easy cloak to hide behind and it's it's yes. easy to garner positive media attention by doing it.
1: Yes. Yes. Well, it the part of the problem is a lot of news medias aren't really news medias, they're entertainment medias. For clicks. So how do you make a story about somebody who's following the law and registering their car and and stopping for red lights and you know paying their taxes? That's not really the story. It's um yeah they make better headlines. When the encampment was the big encampment was in the park Um, Hardesty organized, the first thing, when the tents blew up and I got to the fire marshal of the state and then the fire marshal of the city and DEQ about the air quality, who all told me they couldn't do anything. Hardesty responded, first of all, by putting fire extinguishers on all the no parking signs. So that was her first action when a tent blew up. Engulfed in flames. Like anybody who would have been in that tent would have died. So she did the responsible thing to. Oh, because
0: she was the fire commissioner.
1: Yeah. She put fire extinguishers, like one of those little handheld fire extinguishers was going to help somehow put out an exploding propane tank. The next thing that happened is she had three fire marshals come twice a week to the camp and talk to every single camper about fire dangers.
2: Like they're able to process that.
1: Uh-huh. And then she ordered a cleanup. She met with the Stop the Sweeps people. Now Stop the Sweeps was in constant contact with her. We were not. We never got
2: response from her on anything. Um, wow.
0: And stop the sweeps, Ryan. as you mentioned, is being led by somebody who's not even one of her constituents.
1: Ryan, who's doing these villages,
0: the safe rest,
1: how much we worked on sanctioned camps, priced them out, a structure and everything, never talked to us about it, but thanked Benjamin and you know from Stop the Sweeps for all the work they did on the Safe Rest villages. So when the garbage and stuff had grown to such levels. um, I mean, the rats, it looked like some horror movie. Anyway, we got word that they were stopped the sweeps and Hardesty's office was going to do a camp cleanup that Saturday morning, starting at 8 a.m. So myself and my safety committee were there at 8 a.m. And when we showed up, the first reaction we got was what are you doing here you're not supposed to
2: be here we who live here somebody from rubio's office
1: was there one of her aides and he came over and started talking to us and we said what's going on here and you know what's the plan and we're having this conversation and i finally said well what are you what are
2: you doing here? What's your job? Oh, my job's to keep you all away.
0: Keep the residents, the voters, the taxpayers away? Yeah. The people paying, paying yeah. these officials
2: and their yeah. staff? Yeah. And so there was a gentleman there a very
1: tall African-American man, really handsome, from Hardesty's staff. And he was walking down the street doing something. And I said, what's he doing? And it was explained to me that they cannot clear usable items. They can only clear garbage. And that he was helping define what was garbage and what was usable. And I said to the person from Rubio's office, You know, I would like to walk down the street with him. I get all these complaints about garbage and people are, the citizens are assuming that they're not being heard. I hadn't realized that there was this demarcation between what could be hauled away and what couldn't. I'd like to walk down the street with him while he does this so that I know what's garbage and what isn't. And then I can let people know that, no, you're not being ignored, that, you know, these are the rules and this is the criteria. Nope, I reached out to him two different times by email. Can we talk, I'd like the meeting with you. And I, and you heard why. I'm thinking this is a moment that we can educate ourselves. We can understand policy better. And I'm trying to keep, I'm trying to keep the sense of hopelessness away from my neighborhood. Like, this isn't hopeless. We are just not
2: understanding the law. Nope. Never heard a word.
0: Can you leave your house for any period of time, any lengthy period of time, and feel comfortable at all these days?
1: Um, I, have, uh, I have now a 16 and a half year old dog who can't travel with us. So, Uh, I have people come and stay at the house because the dog can't go with us. Our neighbors consistently tell everybody when they're out of town and where they're going and who's around and who isn't around. Um, it used to be called neighbor watch, but we don't do that anymore because we don't do crime prevention. We stopped neighbor watch.
0: What do you mean? We don't do crime prevention. Um,
1: we kept crime prevention specialists on city payroll for I don't even know how long, year and a half, year or something, and they were not allowed to do their job. Portland City used to have an amazing crime prevention program. They were housed up on Southeast Forty Seventh and Burnside. Like you could walk into the lobby and there were all this information. You didn't even have to talk to anybody. How to keep your bicycle safe? How to keep your house safe? What to do if you have a burglary? What did you know? All, all kinds of wonderful information. They set up a neighbor watches where you would you'd have a block captain and you get everybody's telephone number and um, they you decide how many neighbor watch signs you wanted up around your block. And um, they gave you trainings and there's two questions on there that were optional. Do you have any special training and do you have any medical issues. So like if you happen to be a a doctor or an EMT, or you knew CPR, then you could voluntarily let the other neighbors know that. Or if you had some kind of health condition, say you were an asthmatic or a diabetic, you could let the neighbors know that you didn't have to. But the idea was that that lady in my neighborhood when I was growing up that I didn't like because she watched everything going on in the neighborhood and told my mom before I could get home, Neighbor Watch has been around for centuries. You've always looked out after your neighbors. This was a more formalized process.
2: It was stopped completely. Then it's track. I was told
1: off the record, Hardesty stopped it because it was just an excuse for white people
2: to call the police on black people. I was told off the record that she
1: will not approve anything that in any way would put anybody in contact ever with law enforcement.
0: But she's in contact with law enforcement. I mean, what's so weird is nobody, even though people like Nigel Jaquas, who I think is a great reporter, have done stories on her for instance calling the police on a rideshare driver in the middle of covid when she was refusing to follow their rules and roll down the window because she was visiting an out of state indoor casino and was in the midst of her defund the police like really hot platform to get rid of the police blaming fires on police and then retracting that to the no, nobody
2: media.
0: right right i mean we made i think we maybe even made Definitely national news with that. Yeah. I mean, somebody from the UK may have even covered it. It was so outrageous. Yeah. Um, maybe even international. We never seem to make international or national news for anything good anymore. But I, nobody challenged her on this idea that, you, Joanne, you're using the police. You, you're relying on the police for something most people, most functional, sane people would consider petty and, and an abuse of citizen use of police services because you're not, you're, you're not even following the rules of, of the company that you're trying to use. And you're calling, you're calling the police when, when this company is, is refusing to do business with you and dropping you off at a, a public place to get your, get a different ride. And, and nobody called her on that. Nobody said, yeah. well, what do you plan to do, Joanne? Who are you going to call?
1: She touts the Portland uh, Street response, which we have been trying, uh, the CRC, Citizens Review Committee, uh, I'm still involved with them, but they were trying to get the city to look at chaos or cahoots, the one that is in Eugene. Cahoots, yeah. We were trying for years to get them. But well, she implemented part of that, but she didn't implement all of it. And so basically we have all these uh, Portland street response, which is a great idea. Unfortunately, it isn't, it doesn't do a lot of good because it's not complete. We have no place to take these people. We have no detox centers. We have no mental health centers. Yeah,
0: They used to be called drunk tanks and we just don't have any of that anymore.
1: We have three in inner Southeast that are closed. They're closed down. And so you have somebody come out and talk to somebody and calm them down and then leave them where they are. So it's like offering somebody a fine dinner, offering them a dessert, and not giving them a main course. You know, she, she touts that this is a great program. This is a half great program. The other half isn't there. You know, when we defunded, when we legalized all the drugs, we said we took on the Portugal model. We didn't. We took on the Portugal model of defunding, of of decriminalizing drugs. We did not beef up the enforcement side that Portugal did. You can't shirt drugs in public in, in Portugal, you get arrested for that. You can't deal quantities of drugs. They upped all the enforcement things, commercial enforcement things when they it's like we keep Portland and Oregon in general, we keep just passing carrots and nobody bothers with the enforcement piece of it. You know, we're just going to always nicely ask people to do what they're supposed to do and we won't have any punishment at all. And I've raised a kid. I don't know if you have, but that doesn't work.
0: Yeah, I have two of them. Are are you in favor of these? what's your opinion of these safe rest villages that that Ryan's I guess only one has gotten off the ground and won't know the village. What's what's your opinion of those that Dan Ryan's doing?
1: Well, the one in uh let's see, is it Phoenix or is it San Antonio? Oh no, I think it's Austin. Austin Safe Rest Villages, I think it's Austin. Um, they put out a canvas canopy on every spot. I think they put a pallet on the the ground. I mean, they have showers, they have, you know, bathrooms, they have all that. They don't have tiny homes. These are campers. So we're investing how much money in these quote-unquote temporary safe rest villages That are eventually going to house 350 of the 4,000 people we have when they want to camp. So, how much more could we have done with identified pieces of land with canvas canopies over them for protection of the rain and the and shade pallets to get them off the ground better than where they are now? Camping
2: with enforcement and rules and basic services. Tiny homes are never going to go away.
1: Dignity Village was supposed to be temporary and transition people in and
2: out. That was 30 years ago. why are we doing tiny
1: homes when we have 4,000 people on the street camping? If they want to do vehicles, then find safe parking areas. They need bathrooms, they need water, they need showers, they need trash pickup, they need rules. They need enforcement. They don't need tiny homes.
0: Yeah, this That's is from Ryan's. Off. Yeah, this is from Ryan's own website on this at, at Portland.gov, funding for safe rest villages. And you know, this is likely pretty low and probably conservative. He says these pods that he wants to build that he is building in Multnomah Village, at least. Range from ten thousand to thirty thousand dollars a piece, a piece. Sixty pods per site range from six hundred thousand to one point five million dollars.
1: So how many do you think that you could safely allow to camp, which is what they're doing now
2: in better conditions, Better protection? and all basic services.
1: And here's the other thing. We have outreach workers who go through the camp every time before they clear, every time. We don't have enough outreach workers. What if those outreach workers only had to go to five or six locations in the city because that's where they were camping? And as soon as somebody pitched a tent In front of your place, they would have some place legally to move them to, where they would be safe. They would have their services taken care of.
2: Balance would be returned. I'm sure
0: you read that Willamette Week article that said that... um... Sam Adams met with the managing partners of the law firms in downtown to try to get buy off on these safe rest villages that they were going to place in neighborhoods to get the homeless out of downtown and bring, you know, these big law firms are a big part of commerce downtown and their employees don't want to come back, not because of COVID, but because they don't feel safe. They don't want to traverse downtown. They don't feel safe doing so. And in response, Sam Adams said, well, don't worry about that we're going to send them all to neighborhoods, but you know, we're going to need your buy-off on that because these neighbors are going to be pretty upset that we're putting no barrier homeless camps in the middle of their neighborhood. I think Sam Adams would probably, if if there was pushback on that, Sam Adams would probably say to us, I mean, they're now in pretty much all of our neighborhoods, but certainly Laurelhurst is feeling the brunt of it. One of the brunts of it. what, if you were to push back on that, don't you think Sam Adams would say, well, they're already there. They're already in your neighborhood. So just let us establish a safe rest for them.
2: And again,
1: economy of scales, basic economic principle is.
0: It's just unworkable.
1: It's un- completely unworkable, and
0: and like you said, it's unsafe. I mean, it's just it's it's not it's not a way for them to live.
1: And Sam said that he proposed first big encampments, and then they called them concentration camps. They need to understand the definition of a concentration camp.
0: Yeah, the quote unquote houseless advocates, um, yeah, were I able mean- to to to.
1: And that L.A. Times, she wrote that Phoenix has a area in town where they are allowed to camp. And she told me after she visited, when she called me back for some uh, referencing and and clarifications and some of the things we talked about, she told me that the police do patrol it. the the encampment in Phoenix regularly and the campers like it because it's that it's safe they're safe I mean they aren't different than us because they're homeless they want to be safe so you have 4,000 people your plan's going to take care of 350 and it's going to cost that much I think if that was my budget, I'd take four thousand, divide it by whatever my budget is, and figure out a way that I could
2: accommodate people at that cost or close to that cost.
0: And what's so amazing is he was just voted it, voted right back in. Dan Ryan, the originator of all this, voted right back in handily. You know, your friend Brian at Street Roots, is there anybody else at Street Roots? that you feel is an ally of people like yourself who are like-minded.
1: Uh, Brian just recently rejoined the board, I believe. He hasn't been on street roots for decades because he's been doing this other work. Which right. He still does. Um, Street Roots has to me, I haven't been supportive of it in the last year or two because they seem to have lost their way. They're not doing their original mission. Now they're major theme seems to be advocacy for the homeless
0: for listeners who don't know can you tell us a little bit about when it when street what street what is street roots and what was their original mission our
1: street roots was started probably 30 years ago and the uh, there's a coalition of national houseless papers in this country there's one up in seattle there's and the mission is to give The homeless who generally do not have a voice, a voice, um, the homeless write the articles, uh, the journalistic professionals in the area edit and help them out. They print it up. They sell the newspapers. Their vendors sell the newspapers and the vendors make money. So they legitimately, they're not, panhandling they're selling newspapers
0: they're engaged in in some kind of legitimate work
1: yes and we had a regular vendor that we purchased from always and um somehow of late like i've sat in city meetings where the street roots advocate has said The camp they live at, and that's where they want to live because they choose to be homeless. And they used to be in Indiana or somewhere, and it's very hard to be homeless there. It's much easier to be homeless in Portland. And
2: Did they say why?
1: We have better services. So there's always been in the homeless community this dialogue about... um, most of the people who are homeless in Portland come from other places because we provide these services. And for years, the homeless people, like I'm talking decades, have always said that's not true. Uh, Mark Jolan, who was the, the joint task. I've director. met him. Yeah, well, he used to be the joint executive director. Mm-hmm. I've known him for 20, 25 years. He always said that wasn't true my husband was on the board for join and they did an immersion program where he went and talked to homeless. And I mean, that was a requirement to be on the board and he would say the same thing. Like this was 15 years ago. People come to Portland, people who are homeless in Portland who came to Portland, came to Portland for the same reason as everybody else, a better life, a job, better quality of life. And they got here. It was harder than they thought. They didn't have a plan. They couldn't find a job or whatever. And that used to be the the story. Whenever anybody said they come here for services, no, that's not true. Well, now you have somebody at Street Roots who's a spokesperson for Street Roots saying, I came here for the services and I'm staying on the streets because the services make it easy for me to be on the street. So I don't think, I don't know anymore if that, there's been a shift and I don't know anymore if that's true. I don't know what to think now. Do they come here for services or not? I don't know. I am, but I myself am frustrated as are many people frustrated of people who don't want to not be on the streets. I mean, you hear all the time, because we were talking about service resistance at our, our campaign forum, our candidates forum, and Hardesty point blank said, there is no such thing as a service resistant camper.
0: So yeah. in other words, don't believe your lying eyes, when you see yeah. all these people on the Splayed yeah. out in the gutters. No, if
1: we offered them the right services, they would come in. Again, the carrot.
0: What does she think the right services are? No a, a, idea. A 2,500 square foot home for okay. free? Yeah, I With don't no, know. No barrier? Something I don't like. know. Yeah. And nobody challenged her. Nobody was able to challenge her on that, I take it? Um, Get an answer as to what that would be?
1: Yeah. Yeah. That was, a, it, yeah. No, that's, that service resistant people is the thing that nobody wants to talk about.
0: And and they don't, and the media doesn't cover it. And it's, it's, it's a dirty little secret.
1: We've had conversations with people in city hall staffers where they've said, they have to start talking about, I mean, it's frustrated staffers saying, they have to start talking about service resistance. We have to start doing something. That's where you need the stick, not just the carrot.
0: And of course, they won't go on the record because the people in charge right now, lie. it doesn't align with their rhetoric. Right. And, and you know, I I'm, I started to dig into this. I don't know if you've dug into this at all, but I talked to, for instance, a the guy who's in charge of homeless services for the, maybe not in charge, but he works for homeless services for the city of Gresham, and he's really cleaned up the city of Gresham. his name's Kevin Dahlgren. Have you met Kevin or talked I, to him? No,
1: know. no, I know who you're talking about. They did a great job on getting rid of RVs. They did a great. yeah.
0: I mean, talk about believe your eyes and and look around. All you have to do is cross city lines into Gresham when you're on like spring water. And suddenly these tents disappear because of what the city of Gresham is doing to get these people reunited with family members and housed. And Kevin Dahlgren is sort of at the helm of that. And Kevin helped uncover for me what I think is a huge issue in the city of Portland that really doesn't get a lot of coverage. Every once in a while, it comes up. um, And Nigel, Jockwas, is usually the person who covers it. But there's this what Kevin calls the nonprofit industrial complex that exists in the city of Portland, that millions, well, I think we even came up with billions with a B are being, especially with this homeless tax are being poured into with no results, obviously, because we can look around and see, it's just getting worse. No metrics, no data. And people like Mark Jolin, who I met, is, is telling me, don't believe your lying eyes, believe what I tell you. And he's, you know, working for Deborah Kofori, who's currently Multnomah County chair and saying what was, yeah, not anymore, but recently, um, stepped, stepped away from that. But, and of course she, she soon will be termed out. Um, but you know, Nigel, it was just fascinating. I don't know if you read this, but Nigel uncovered, This is from October 6, 2021 in Willamette week. And the headline is critics question the close relationships between nonprofits and the county office that battles homelessness. And Nigel uncovered the fact that Jolin's office, um, in terms of spending this new Metro homeless services money, the, the billions that they're getting through this rich tax, this homelessness tax, Jolin's office requested, I'm quoting from the article, Proposals from consultants to help the counties prepare. 39 firms responded. Jolin's office ranked the proposals and sent its results to the three metro area counties, Multnomah, Washington, and Clackamas, that will use the scores to decide on contracts. The top scorer was a company called Christina Smock Consulting. Smock is Jolin's wife. So there is all this self-dealing in power in the city and in these counties that is in turn funding these nonprofits that these people in power are cozy with to the tune of millions of dollars. It is rotten to the core.
1: Um, I have a different plant on that.
2: Yeah. Uh, talk, talk, that. talk about that.
1: Fifteen is Mark's wife. She's absolutely brilliant. She's highly qualified. Um, I think it isn't so much corruption. Um, as much as I disagree with a m- much of Mark's policies, I know I can't. I mean, he doesn't speak to me anymore. We used to be friends.
0: What happened?
1: Difference of opinion. I, he I, he doesn't like a lot of things I say. But even knowing that, he's. As ethical as they come, he's so entrenched in his ethics. Christine is so entrenched. It's like they both drank the Kool Aid of the homeless problem. He's been entrenched in the homeless problem forever. Yeah. He does, I will say the same thing I said earlier there is a lack of recognition that the demographics of the homeless have changed.
0: Yeah, I think that's right.
1: They are still back to, these are people who are down on their luck and we need to help them. There's no acknowledgement that there's a criminal element there. There's no acknowledgement of the severity of the meth
0: problem. The addiction crisis, sure. And and the opioid crisis. And the
1: opioid uh, crisis. And so they're still in that world where this is all a socioeconomic issue of people down and out in their luck. I think it's a optimism or a naivete or but I don't think at its heart it's corruption or evil.
0: Well, and I I never said evil. I wouldn't say evil. And
1: I just sound like Pollyanna again. <laughs> The the Sisters of the Road people, the um, Stop the Sweeps people, there are just, for whatever reason, believe that if you are homeless, you should be given a free ride for everything. That the single defining thing about you is the fact that you're homeless. It's the same thing as the racist card. The single de facto about you is the color of your skin. Do he and do what if you took that same criteria and applied it to the whole housed people. Nobody would buy it. Oh, well, they have houses. So, of course, all of them are law abiding people because they live in houses. People would call you on that in a heartbeat. That doesn't define your ethics at all. But yet, some reason this
2: monolithic idea of homeless in quotes means that you're just not
1: making and not making conscientious decisions, you're just captive of your socioeconomic situation, which is frankly insulting to a lot of working poor people
0: it's victimizing it's like soft bigotry of low expectations as glenn lowry who's a yeah. brown university professor calls it yeah so d- don't you think though that there's an issue regardless of how brilliant mike Jol mark Jolen's wife might be do you think there's an issue with people in power handing out money to friends and relatives certainly people are married to
1: I think there's a bigger problem, honestly, of handing out money to incompetence people. Bigger, much bigger problem. I think that's the biggest problem we have. I mean, listen, I tell people, I get phone calls from other neighborhoods and other people. Like, there's a shelter coming in. What do we do to stop it? And I, I tell them all the same. You can't. They've changed the coding, they've changed everything. You cannot stop a shelter from coming in. And frankly, we need them. All shelters are not the same. Some shelters function really well because they're managed well, and they have rules and regulations.
0: But most of them don't anymore. But Certainly most not anymore. them don't. But,
1: but the fact that those few do exist means it's possible. Sure. It's good neighbor agreements. It's responsible people, understanding that there needs to be a balance and a respect with the neighborhoods. Um, the the women's pod up in was it Kenton?
2: Yeah. Those right. neighbors,
1: they those neighbors love that. They have no problem with it. I was in a meeting with Mark Jolan when he was the executive director of Join. Now, when they set up Join, what time that day shelter opens and what time that night that they close in the afternoon at that time, I have no clue what's going on now, was based on neighbors' concerns. They didn't want homeless coming in the neighborhood when the children were walking to school or walking home from school. It opened after school started. It closed before school was out. I'm in a meeting with him and his phone rings, his cell phone, he goes, okay, I got to go. And it was an important one. I was fundraising for them. And somebody else stepped in and he darted off. And I'm like, what's going on? There's a business across the street from them with a parking lot and it's a restaurant, and somebody had pitched a tent in their parking lot. They had Mark Jolin's cell phone number and he immediately went out there and got rid of that tent. There are, and I don't know what's going on with Joy now. I think people. Citizens have the right to get a good neighbor agreement that you clean up. You don't allow tents outside of your shelter. And this is possible. We've seen it. In I'm the past. I'm not with you. Right? you right that there aren't that many.
2: Well, but and I'm certainly sorry. not now. Certainly no, not now. But
1: they're still here. So we need to look at the ones that are good, responsible, respectful neighbors. And then we need to make the other ones
2: be that way. That's all within the city's ability that they're not doing. So what is, yeah, yeah, yes, it makes sense.
0: And I understand. And I, I agree with you. I, I, I don't have a lot of hope that those are going to come back or that (laughs) anybody's interested in doing any of those. Because I think the Mark Jolins are the loudest voices in the room now, and their philosophy the is ruling. Because
1: of us aren't writing the letters. But I'll tell you something. If you find out tomorrow you're just Miss, Miss Annie Smith, who doesn't pay much attention to anything, and a neighbor says they're going to put a shelter across the street, I bet you start paying attention. And then what are you going to do? If this was a mantra that many of us said, well, there are places in the city that are doing a good job. Why don't you go, why don't you demand a good neighbor? I mean, some of it is just giving these people the tools.
0: I think part of it, though, is that they tried. Like in Multnomah Village, they tried. They told Dan Ryan, they, it was right, it's right by a school. They want him to screen for sex offenders. He wouldn't do it. They want him to screen for felons. He wouldn't the, do it.
1: The one up by uh, the international school did that. Yeah. But you know what else? The site in Multnomah Village used to be an emergency winter shelter. All winter long. They collected them from downtown in a bus at a set time, took them to that building for the shelter. In the morning, they had to be out by a certain time. They put them back in their bus and took them back to wherever they met the bus to go to a shelter for a night. There that shelter was there for a number of years as an emergency shelter with no problems.
0: It's just it's not politically popular anymore. Or or at least maybe it is with a silent majority. It it does the people in power are pushing this narrative that it's mean to Kick Make people him follow out. The rules that the rest of us follow. Yeah, that, that's mean. It, it's this yeah. victimiz. It's like you said. It's this victimization mentality where they're they're the homeless are perfect and they can do no wrong and the rest of us should just pay for whatever they want to do. Let's just ask these non-functional, completely meth-addled, mental illness-ridden people what they want to do, and we'll pay for it.
2: Carrots, no sticks. Where does that work? Show me anywhere that works.
0: I, I I know, and and those of us who have our eyes open see that it's just getting worse. How? What is the what is? I I couldn't get an answer when I talked to Mark. I I don't know. Do you know what the rationale is behind these sort of horse blinders that that people with this philosophy are putting on to tell themselves that things are getting That they're making a difference, that things are, their philosophy is making things better?
1: They truly, sincerely believe the ones that I know and respect and disagree with. Mm -hmm. They truly believe this is a long term problem and it's going to be a long term solution. My pushback is. I'm not disagreeing with that as a fact. What I want, mitigating things in between the realization of that long-term goal.
0: Well, and your ideas about the solution differ. Your philosophy is different.
1: Not long-term, no. I think we do need affordable housing. I do think long-term, we do have gaps in housing for even working poor. Sure. and But that's a long-term solution. I I don't think that that's, I, 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 I don't think it's an either or, that it has to be this way or this way. I'm saying there has to be something to address the now while you're going for that perfect future.
0: Well, and there's this bizarre disconnect between that philosophy if if allegedly Mark Jolin really is walking the streets and seeing these homeless people, as, as one of my girlfriends says, th- these are not people who are, who were one rent check short and otherwise would be living in a beautiful townhouse in Bethany. That's not the people in tents. And, and when I talked to Mark, what he talked about are the people that we don't see single mom working five jobs families with kids, um, people that we, that Kevin's Dahlgren says we do a pretty, and Renee says we do a pretty good job of, of housing actually. Yes, yes. Functional people who, yeah. who really are a couple rent checks away from yeah. getting back on their feet. But those, what I kept coming back to and what he refused to answer is, those aren't the people any of us are concerned with. The right. people we're concerned with are affecting livability, quality yeah. of life. And they themselves are living in despair. They will never get two mama working five jobs or the family to rent checks away from a townhouse in Bethany because they are so unfunctional that they're living in a, in a tent.
2: Because so what
0: do we do about them?
1: I was told, I haven't done this yet, but I was told when I couldn't find the housing first kind of stuff I was looking for to justify us pouring all this money into, I was told by somebody I respect a lot um, to look at uh, the studies about there's a target of four years. Like once somebody's been on the street four years, then they're chronic homeless and they become a major problem. So what he told me was, and this was somebody who was running shelters and heavily involved in all this, is they're their objective is to get as many as they could off the street before they hit that four-year mark. And that's the housing market, uh, housing first model. That's why they're just so embracing that. They're trying to get them before they're at the four-year mark. I haven't haven't started that. But I think
0: we all agree that they're doing okay with that because I'm not seeing a mom with five kids in a tent. I'm seeing a lot of white men between the ages of, I don't know, 18 yeah. and, and probably, I mean, there's some older guys too that are pretty grizzled.
1: Probably middle
0: thirties, you know, 18 to 40 ish. And- well, yeah. The, the other reason we know that this is not primarily a housing issue is undocumented people are not in these tents. These tents are right. white men who mostly who speak English.
1: Yeah. Yeah.
0: It's the, it's the undocumented are able to house themselves somehow.
1: We have um, enabled a criminality. I mean, you know, it's human nature. If it's easier to get by without working, we're going to do it. I mean, we all choose the easiest way to get something done. And unfortunately we've just completely enabled that in some people.
0: Well, I really appreciate your time. Boy, have
1: we wandered, haven't we?
0: (laughs) I think we've said it all, TJ. We've said it all. As Howard Stern would say, we've done it all. We've said it all. Um, I
1: appreciate you being patient with me as I Well, I appreciate
0: you. I I think everything you said was really valuable. I learned a lot. I think the listeners are going to learn a lot. Is there anything else um, that you think people should know?
2: Everybody has something they can do. Everybody has something they can contribute. Everybody has a means of making this better. And we have a tendency as people to look at the top of the mountain and go, we'll
1: never get there. So I suggest everybody just look down at the ground and just. Pay attention to taking steps. I think if we all do that, we have a shot of getting to the top of the mountain. We are at a tipping point, and we need every good person to get on
2: that scale on the side of good and push it over. Otherwise, we're all screwed.
0: thanks, T j. Thanks for being so open and for talking so long about this crisis that's really plaguing our city and and frankly for all the work that you're doing in your community well now for our city
1: well you know what just saying that makes me think oh i gotta get back to work
0: see i'll let you get back to work thank you again it was so good to meet you
1: thank you thank you dear keep up the good work